It comes with responsibility. This is not a gift. You know, there's a responsibility there. Uh, most Aboriginal people want uh, non-Aboriginal people to be part of the country now because the facts are no one's going away, so we're going to have to get along with each other. But the worst thing for country is to have restless spirits. And if you're not engaged with a country, you're not listening to country, you're not watching country, then you're a, a bloody nuisance because you know, you're not, not caring. And uh, that's not what we want. Aboriginal people can't afford non-Aboriginal people not to care. That was Bruce Pascoe, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and internationally, and their continuing connection to country, culture, community, land, sea and sky, and we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an eighth-generational Australian regenerative farmer, and in this podcast series... I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. G'day. This episode is uh, a ripper. It's part one of a number of interviews I did at the very recent Farm to Plate Exchange put on by Regionality Rose Wright and her unreal team. Uh, we were at uh, the Scenic Rim at Bow Desert for the two days. Um, went to a couple of other farms in the afternoons of those days and had some delicious dinners. But what I did do every, every evening uh, at the evening events was drag to my studio, makeshift studio in part one. We're in the hay shed at Tomarup Farm, their beautiful dairy farm in the scenic, um, scenic rim. And I spoke with Bruce Pascoe, Rose Wright, uh, Georgina Davis, Stuart Larson, Kay Tomarup and Kate McBride. And just before we slip into the show, I just want to tell you about the uh, latest raft of biodynamic workshops that we have released. Uh, we've got four dates for you. The first one is on June the 15th and 16th in the Central West New South Wales at Cape T Valley. Our wonderful hosts there, Terry and Stuart. Uh, and they're from, from the paddock. Check them out on Instagram. They're, they're fantastic uh, in Glen Alice. And also um, a couple of days later on the 17th and 18th, uh, we'll be in the Hunter Valley at the wonderful Crinklewood Biodynamic um, vineyard there um, with Oscar and his team. So we're very um, keen to uh, get um, as many of their um, club, their wine club members there as well. So maybe sign up and uh, get yourself there. Two other dates um, then in July. So those ones are in June. These next light, uh, dates are in July. We're the uh, 19th and 20th in the Western Downs in Queensland. Um, Adele and uh, Philip Hughes been fantastic supporters of regenerative agriculture there um, through, uh, well, for some time now and also through the Lock and Hughes Foundation, um, which we'll be talking about in due course. Um, we met them at, I met them at Aubrey and um, they're just fantastic, lovely, lovely couple. Um, and also then on the 22nd and 23rd at the Sunshine Coast with our good buddies Mitch and Nina Bray, Bray Farms there. Um, they'll be wrapping up our sort of winter series uh, for two days, the 22nd and 23rd. All those tickets are available on our website, so go to the bio, go to the website, do whatever you can to get onto our tri-booking tri- site 
early bird tickets will um, are not going to be around for very long, so jump on board. And um, I hope you enjoy this collection of wonderful present- presenters uh, from the uh, Farm to Plate Exchange conference as much as I did. G'day, Rose Wright. Charlie Arnott. Here we are. Welcome to Tomerup Farm. Mm-hmm. For those who are on the YouTube machine, um, they can see us sitting in a hay shed. Yeah. Basically, there's bars of hay behind us. Doesn't smell good. It's fantastic. It's the first time I've done an interview in a hay shed before. I love firsts. That's First, great. So don't light up, okay? No. <laughs> <laughs> it will be. It'll be the last interview I do at a hay shed. <laughs> And my last one with you. Yes. Let's not. Let's make sure that's not the case. We don't want that. Rose, we are here at Tomerup Farm because it's the afternoon session, late afternoon session of the Farm to Plate Exchange conference um, just outside of, well, we were in Bow Desert, weren't yep. we? Yeah, we were. In the scenic rim. Um, and I'm here to talk to you mm. about your role in putting together um, the Farm to Plate Exchange and also... Well, how are you? It's it's sort of ended nearly end of the first day. Yeah. You how's your pulse? Oh, how could I not have incredible energy from the people in the room? I mean, it's the vibe. It's the vibe. <laughs> it's the vibe. It is. It, the energy in that room is, and this is the second time you've been. It's more intense than last time, partly because there's more people. But I think we've got. I I just I can't explain it. It's just this incredible energy, giving energy, and and I'm completely energized from. I mean, we haven't had much sleep. The team and I have been mm. working around the clock pulling it together, and um, so we're we're really tired, but we're incredibly energized at the same time. So Friday's looking like sit in a fetal position on the couch, <laughs> staying <laughs> with, there, a tea, with a cup of tea <laughs> and not move or a bottle of gin, depending on how I'm feeling. Well, you, well, you, you, you and the team deserve it because it's gone off without a hitch. Well, from from our from the attendees' point of view, I'm sure the stuff going on in the background always is at these sort of things. If I leap across to your mic with a with a with a sock, it's just because the wind's picking up. Sure. But um, and it's clean. So as long clean. As you don't stuff it in here. <laughs> they're clean. So if we hear the of the wind, yep. um, I think we've done pretty well to get sort of out of the out of it here. This is actually a fantastic spot, Rose. Um, tell me about the genesis of of Farm to Plate Exchange. What what was the? Because the first one was um, nineteen. Yes. And it was close to the coast. It was um, near the Goldie, wasn't it? South of the Gold it's Coast. In the Tweed. In the Tweed. That's yep. right. It was too. So. What? What? Why? Why did you? Why have you done this? Because I'm, I'm sort of preempting this with someone else came to me and said, "Why isn't Rose doing this everywhere? Yeah. You know, where else is there, is there is there a conference like this?" So maybe there's two questions in there. But the okay. first one is, "What was the genesis of of, of um, Farm to Plate Exchange?" Okay, um, that's a really lovely question. I guess the last 15 years, I've had the privilege of working with regional communities and farmers in particular, helping them to identify ways that they can create greater value from their farm practices or their farm products um, or their farm, just generally, helping them to look at ways to develop beyond the farm gate and create meaningful connections with consumers and create layers of value, move away from being a price taker or price maker, all those, you know, mm. all those buzzwords that everybody uses. But because I've had the privilege of spending time on farm with so many play- people and really connecting with them and being inspired by them, 
and by regions doing incredible things. Most of the regions I work in are not established food regions. They're emerging. I mean, when I started working in Scenic Rim, I mean, the mayor was the biggest carrot grower in the district and he went, who'd want to come and visit a farm in Scenic Rim? Actually, that probably wasn't his accent. I probably – anyway. But now they – Oh, I just – I know exactly what you're talking about. Just from that <laughs> <laughs> you, dob- you pretty much dobbed me. I'm going to whip that sock over the there. Stock. They are clean. They look pretty manky. That's okay. That's- <laughs> I'm not going to look at it. It's a very un- unusual looking thing. To have it looks like a green. I- it looks like a green ice cream or something, doesn't it? <laughs> That's not what I came to my mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, yep. So I guess I tend to work in regions that are embryonic in their um, collaborative process, or farmers that are at the beginning. We sometimes work with people that are established. Like if I think about Roz and Damien at, at Rich Glen, Oliver State, you know, we work, we've done some work with them. They've been part of our program. So sometimes we get people who are already established who are trying to get the next level or trying to refine what they're doing. But quite often we'll find that we're, we're working with farmers that are starting at the beginning and really trying to work out where, what can I do and how do I go about it. And they always start with, well, what do I have to do? And, and that's the last thing I think about. So I guess the reason why Farm to Plate came to fruition was because I have over the years accumulated so so many um, amazing stories. And every time I go to a conference, now there's some amazing conferences around agriculture and food and tourism around the country, but none of them connect the value chain. None of them think about the far, that connecting, you know, production to consumption value chain. And they're all pitched at kind of talking at you. And it's a bit like eating Chinese food. You know, you kind of eat and you think, oh, yeah, that was satisfying when you listen to some of those things or you go to one of those conferences and a half an hour later you go, you know what, I'm still hungry for more information. <laughs> so I and, – and most of those conferences don't tend to be – they don't tend to be pitched at the average person working on a farm trying to find solutions. And I thought, well, if I'm meeting all these amazing people who have all these common values, maybe there's an appetite out there to bring them together so they can share their information with each other and to learn from incredible people like yourself and like so many others, like Charles and uh, Charlie and Bruce and you know, all the speakers that we've mm. had today and tomorrow, maybe there's an opportunity for them to be inspired by that, but then for the speakers to hang around and actually be part of the experience as well. So we, I, I came up with this crackpot idea that it was a two-day intensive learning experience, an immersive learning experience where you everything that you did, said, um, ate, drank, was uh, reflecting the values that we put around, um, you know, the farm-to-plate value chain and positioning farmers to be able to do things differently and tap into the conscious consumer. And uh, so that's that's where it came from. And the first one we did in 2019 was in the Tweed because I live in the Tweed and we'd been doing a lot of work in the Tweed. And the other thing that we try and do is select a region that we work that we've worked in in previous times or currently. So we're currently working again in the scenic rim a decade later. And um, we here comes Dave Tomara. And goes Dave with a light. Here comes he's got some lighting happening. <clears throat> Go, Dave. Dave's amazing. Oh, you're the man. He look is. Him. He is. Look, he's put the lighting up. He's he's been working he's all day, and he's been. I bet he's been wearing that gear all day. And look how clean he is because he's because he he just put does my it. husband to work, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I met Tony earlier. He's a good bloke. He's a good fella. Yeah. Um, He's here. I can't tell stories about him. Oh, oh you know, oh. that'll be oh, that'll be, that'll be fine, Dave, for the moment. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Now we've got Mike the Brewer coming. 
Mike the Brewer. This is all. You can bring a beer, Mike. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. He's, he's a brewer. One. He's a brewer. He's why got scenic rim brewing. Why do you think he'd even think of turning up here without a beer? He probably didn't realise we were here. Oh. I will what do you reckon beer. he came over here for drain the spuds or something? No. He went, oh, hang on, there's people in here. <laughs> I think he just came over because he was following Dave and he was his helper. They'd <laughs> be good friends. Oh, this is what, that's what happens here at the where we are. It's all about helping each other. It is. And I think, you know, that. that, that so that's what this was all about. Mm. The whole idea was... I had the privilege of seeing all these amazing people. I wanted to get them all in a room to see if it, it would actually help them to grow and that they would be willing to share and that, you know, that there was a way to take people on this. It's a bit of a narrative. Like, we've really curated the program. Um, over, so that 50, it, over 15 years now? Is it, how, many, how many years since? I've only it, done this twice. No, no, but the, the, the – well, not so much the oh, – I mean, I'm thinking more the program, your, your, your um, oh. uh, I guess, farm-to-plate program. How long have you been doing that? Yeah, I've – well – Initially started it in 2006. Yeah, okay. So, so what that quite, is? Yeah, that's about yeah. 17 years. So, yeah, this is a culmination of all that work, all that experience, and then you're putting it on for two days. So, t- yeah, and this is really about bringing that community of interest together and being able to have some challenging conversations like we did today around, you know, there's people in the room that don't want to know about regenerative or, or you know, from a policy setting make it really hard for regenerative well, for even doing composting on farm, it's it's uh, it, you know this policy setting set out by the you know the environmental agency in Queensland make it hard to do um, composting on farm. Are they here today? No, they're not. But we're going to have to have a conversation. Mm. But but you know, I think mm. so. Being able to highlight these issues and go, hey, look, these are great. This is the way the world's moving. We need policy and and regulation. Progress. And we can do that together. Mm. We can demonstrate there's a need, and by bringing People in a room together, or even down the, to the to the point of saying, can we collectively buy packaging together mm. and share knowledge around that and save all those farmers? You know, there were twenty odd farmers who put their hand up. They said, "Yeah, I'd be interested in doing that." So, you know, if we can help save them some time, they're not competing with each other; they're all collaborating. But if they can all invest and buy collectively, it'll save them some money. It'll save them some time. You know, we I don't have all the answers, but there's so many answers sitting around that room. And if you can bring people together, it just everyone is raising it's raising the tide, yeah? All mm. the boats floating, what's that saying? I don't know. But you know what I'll I mean. I'll have to I'll have to put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> FYI Rose was, Rose was rabbiting to. on about boats which so, have nothing to do with agriculture. But it is fishing. Oh, aquaculture. <laughs> Aqu- so tell me, um, we're in the scenic rim. You've you've been um, you've been uh, helping farmers in this area um, for, for for some time now. Where else have you have you planted seeds? Um, what other sort of regions and how far do you go? Because someone asked me today, said, well, where, you know, where else does Rose do her work? So where, where yeah. else can people find your work, your handiwork? Okay, so we've done uh, the Mary Valley and the Sunshine Coast area um, before it got all organised. We were doing some work out there. We done work in far north Queensland, tropical north Queensland, um, Atherton Tablelands, um, down around Mission Beach. We set up food groups up there. They were all still happening and ran workshops up there. We were almost hunted out of town by the local tourism people who said, you know, we're not about food up here. We're about reef and rainforest. And I went, well, <laughs> actually, mate, every, every visitor eats and drinks. And yeah. Plenty of it growing. Put your hand up if you eat food. Mm. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and, and then uh, – so Mackay, Isaac, with Sunday region, um, we helped them do a strategy up there, did business development programs and 
you know, set, help them set up a farmer's market. So we've done work there. Goodness, um, New England, we've done some work in, around, we're doing work at the moment in Glen Innes. We've previously done some work around Armadale, um, Toowoomba region. We did a little bit of work up there, uh, a little bit in the Southern Highlands, uh, a little bit um, on the Murray. I've done a lot of work in the Murray region, both sides of the border. Um, currently doing some work in Western Murray in a place called Barham and Moorcool, oh, yeah. yeah. which has been really badly affected by, you know, the Murray-Darling Basin and drought. Uh, so, and, and that's in, incredibly challenging. I've worked in other parts of Victoria. I've done some little bit of stuff in South Australia. and Everywhere. I've, I've been everywhere, man. Like, there's a lot of other places too. And northern New South Wales. How can I forget my own patch? But, yeah, northern rivers. Yeah. Yeah, my aim back in 2006 was to get myself a couple of cheesemakers and some, and I got that. Got a little cluster of modern cheesemakers happening. We some changed great some great cheesemakers up here, isn't it? Well, you know what was really interesting about the cheesemaking? The reason why we, we had some of the best dairy in country mm. in the world, but Norco's policy at the time was that they wanted 100% of the dairy farm's milk. So I sat with the CEO and the chairman at the time and I said, look, why don't you let some of these farmers put 10% into their own production, not milk? cheese, mm. it, all it's going to do is grow the reputation of the region as Australia's premier food, dairy product dairy, region. Yeah. And that brand, you're the biggest player. It'll, anyway, they agreed, and that's how people like Nimbin Valley Dairy and Bangalore Cheese. Was that you, Rose? I did that. That's awesome. They did our program, believe it or not. Wow. Because yeah. I'm good mates with Chris Eckert, who spoke today. Chris is a great guy. Isn't he fantastic? Oh, my God, he's beautiful. Don't tell him that, though. No, no, we won't. He doesn't pump, listen. We, we won't pump his tires no, up, do he's we? Gorgeous. I had to give him a hug. <laughs> he's quite COVID. big, though, isn't he? He's big. You know, get, get, get your arms well, around I'm him. Not exactly. <laughs> well, just because you're skinny, mate. <laughs> oh, stop it. Um, <laughs> but he's but, not he, actually, but, he's but, just fit. But, but the um, uh, yeah, and he told me for the you know I, I didn't really know the ins and outs of it all, but he said, yeah, no, they they let us have a percentage that we can do our own thing if we wish, which is. Which I think, I don't know if any of the other dairy people do that, do they? There's a few that do it. So there's, awesome. there's quite a few in the Northern Rivers that do it. Um, and uh, even Kay and Dave were able to tap into that policy as well. Yeah, cool. So they were able to do some valuating. That's where Kay started doing a butter mm -hmm. and she's won delicious awards from that. And um, So that policy gives farmers the opportunity to dabble and test and trial and see if there's a market for the product. If they're good at it. You know, some people can make cheese and other people can't, mm -hmm. you know. Kay's not interested in making cheese. She doesn't float a boat, but she loves making handmade butter. butter she yeah. hand churns butter. Yeah, yeah wow. And hand, I mean, and it's sensational. Yeah. That's why she's won the Delicious Awards. But, um, you know, so she makes a whole, a whole that she plays to her strengths and, and the strengths of the herd and the, the merwa, which is like terroir for milk. Merwah. That's that's a rosism. Sorry, it's pretty the, tacky, there you go, isn't it? Milk, the, <laughs> the taste of milk. No, it's so true. It is so true. It I mean, different. it's absolutely. You know, and I was I was talking to um, just a couple of years ago, following LA, who has, he's a he's a cheese. What's a cheese man? Cheesemaker. Cheese. Oh, well, no, he was he was the guy who was the. Oh. He did the cheese in the restaurant. They had a specific oh, guy. Yes. at fig restaurant there in Santa yes. Monica. Anyway, lovely guy, Eric. He is a legend. Anyway, and he was talking about exactly, and I never thought of it before. Is the 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 um the flavour of the cheese is reflection of the of the land, which is like wine, like like meat, beef, like, anything. like lamb, yeah, like awesome. it's 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 everywhere. So every single product that you eat and consume, if it's you can taste the mm. soil or not, the microbes or not, you can taste the minerals. You can you can taste the climate, the environment in the food that you eat. If it's if it's if you've got that closeness to the producer, and that's why some meat that you eat 
is you know, processed. Horrible. Yeah. yeah. Do you know the, the stuff that feedlots, that's <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Look, like, it, it, it's got a sourness to Tafos, it. Tafos. It's got a sourness to yeah, it, you know. Yeah. It just, and it doesn't, you taste meat that's grass-fed or organic, that's real meat, that's traditionally farmed, um, you know, not conventionally farmed, but farmed in, in a way that allows the environment to flourish. And, and that meat tastes different. It's a real depth of flavour. There is yeah. a depth of flavour. And, and, you know, it's not all melt in your mouth. It's got texture. You can actually feel it. You've got a great mouth feel. The texture in your mouth is amazing. I'm, I'm not a food critic, just a food lover. No, and that's the important thing. And, it, you know, it's a bit like wine. It's like, What's good wine? Well, whatever tastes good, whatever whatever floats your boat. There you go, the boat's back again. Oh, you come back there. I'm just trying to, Any I'm just trying to help storm. you. Trying to help Any you port the storm. <laughs> there you go. It's so far from the coast. There'll be another one. Um, Rose, for those who, um, just while we're on that, you know, farmers thinking about, and there's a few in the room I've sort of been chatting with today and know of, you know, that are sort of going, oh, how do we sort of, how do we value add? How, how do we get it to direct to customers? I mean, what are some of the things you would say they need to think about, you know, step one or two? What, what are some of the things they need to do, apart from call you and have a chat with you? Yeah, no, um, well, yes, we'd love to have a chat with them. But first thing is why are you doing it? And don't tell me it's just because you want to make money because no farmer I know does it just because they want to make money because there would be other ways to, to do that. Um, understanding the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning is the thing that the driving passion that motivates you is the most important step and you use that as a, as a cornerstone. And the other thing I would suggest that they do, the next step, or you could do it the other way around, is to really think about the core values that underpin your decision-making and then that gives you a framework for everything that you do. So the values, that, that's your brand framework. It's your business framework in terms of decision-making. It helps you to identify who to collaborate with and who not to collaborate with. How you're going to go about it and what you need to do is a process then of aligning to those things. So how you would go about it is, is really understanding the capacity, the capability of your farm, where your spare capacity is, where the opportunities are. I would suggest, you know, un- start small test and trial. Don't go building a big factory, you know. Start really small. Things like farmers markets or food events or, you know, don't just go to family and friends and say, does this taste good? You know, really get out there and and get to know who your consumer is and then adjust what you're producing and how you're producing it to meet the customer needs and in a way that aligns with your core values and your core purpose. Because we talk about living the brand and you wouldn't, you would know about this. But you talk about living the brand, it's a hell of a lot easier to live the brand if it is authentically representative of your values and what drives you. If it doesn't drive you, then why are you doing it? And, you know, one of the things I've learned to do over the years is sack customers. So I haven't had to do too many, but I've had a couple of people. How do you do that? You're fired. No, you just go, well, look, you know what? I'm I'm Mm. not feeling – I don't yep. think that our values align. Yeah, cool. and and Kay talked about that on stage today. You know, she talked about the hotel that she worked with on the Gold Coast, where it was a waste yeah. of her time and energy. And she's done things on farm with organisations um, where they've wanted a certain outcome, and she's compromised her values, and the outcome is not good for her. They've got what they've wanted, but there's no business outcome. They they might have thought they were going to make money out of it, but there was no 
there was not they weren't on brand they weren't on message it wasn't aligned with them so it's really important to be able to be confident in understanding why you're doing what you're doing why you're going down this venture and for some people it's because you're passionate about the farm the thing about farming that's different to any other business is it's not like a retail shop you might be passionate about selling widgets in a shop but you can walk into the shop in the morning and you do what you're doing and you walk out of the shop in the afternoon and, yes, you might take the bookwork home, but the bookwork's not going to wake you up in the middle of the night because it because it's giving birth. You know, you can't, <laughs> yeah. you can't a leave living, a farm. Thing, it is yeah. part of your farms and farmers. People are intrinsically linked to their land and to their story. Farms are people's past, present and future. It's not just their business. It's their home. It's their way of life. It's everything about them, and I guess developing a business model based on a farm is very different to developing a business model for a tech startup or developing a business model for a restaurant in the city or, or you know, whatever. It's just different, and you would know this because you're an amazing farmer and, and you know what I'm talking about. But other, unless you're a farmer, you, you, you don't kind of – that other people don't seem to understand the difference. And so what we've done over the years, I guess, is try to refine a process that actually is really works for the prime. prime I mean, I'm, a far, I'm a, the daughter of a farming family, you know, Italian farming family. Where, where, so your parents came out from? A place called Grassano. Where's that? Uh, in Provincia Matera in southern Italy between... Uh, Brindisi and ba- Bari on the south coast, right in the middle of the Shin. Yeah. On the oh, on the Shin. Yeah, just so in, inland from Naples, halfway between oh, Naples nice. and, and Bari. So down there, 1,100-year-old village on the top of a mountain. So mum and dad came from there yeah. over here. Dad wow. was a POW in the war. Mm. He came over, was put onto a banana farm as they did because they needed workers. All the men were gone. He was then sponsored back out and... Mum had never left the village. She'd never got on anything that was motorised. She'd only ever walked to their farm and ridden a donkey. As her poor woman was dragged to Australia, she thought she was going to Austria, and then all of a sudden she's on a boat. Oh no! And <laughs> and and um Austria. and anyway, so she they they started from nothing, and they were banana farmers in the Tweed. And my dad was an they were incredibly fierce, proud people. Um, but I remember the food system just screwing them over like they would produce beautiful products and they would send them to market and they would get a bill for the transport. And when I started working in this area, I started to discover that that system hasn't changed, Mm. you know. There's still no transparency in the food system and I've only ever wanted to change it. So I tried to do it from one angle and then I ended up in this space and I guess for me this has been about trying to get one farm at a time, one region at a time, empowering them to create their own value chain, mm. leave the price taker food system behind and create your own way. And if you create your own way and you do that with other people who share the same values, you can all work together to make that happen. And yes, it takes time, but at least you get the joy and the satisfaction of being your own master and not being stuck at the arse end of a supply chain, being screwed over by the big boys. That's cool. probably not appropriate for the podcast, and I'm so sorry. You'll have That's to bleep, awesome. bleep that. We don't do any – we don't cut a thing. If you sneeze or oh God. cough oh, or anything. Oh, told no, me no. that at the beginning. No, it's all good. Um, <laughs> I'm reminded from what you said then, Rose, JFK, well, I'm pretty sure it was him. He said, farmers, they 
buy retail, they sell wholesale, and they pay transport both ways. That's right. And it's a bit rude. It is. Um, and the other thing, back to nature, you know, I say that nature is your most valuable business partner, mm. you know, and if we don't treat them like a business partner, um, then, it, you know, we'll get screwed over. <clears throat> well, it's just, you know, it's just we, we need to consider that very seriously, all the variables and all the relationships that need to be built around well, our relationship with nature, with yeah. that cow that's producing the milk that's going to make the butter. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you heard today from, like, Stuart Wilmot, Stuart Larson, you know, Chris, um, they're all talking about how they're getting that return on investment by putting in place ecological systems mm. that, you know, it's a, it's, it might have a little bit of a longer payback, but it, it, it might take a little bit longer to establish. But then once it's established, not only does it pay back environmentally, it pays back financially and it pays back socially. You know, I can't begin to tell you how many farms I walk onto and the soil is sour and so are the farmers. It, there is a, do you know what I mean? Mm. There is, I, I walk onto a, you know, sometimes I walk onto a, and I, I'm not, like, I grew up on, on a farm. I'm not a farmer. I couldn't tell you how to farm. It's in your, or, bones. It's in your bones. It's in my bones. But I think the thing that really um, I've observed through being on farms, conventional and otherwise, is that there is a, there is a physical difference in the properties, which we've seen through all the things, you know, the form of farming, um, biological systems, you know, regenerative farms, et cetera, organic farms, they, they are more resilient. They all go through drought. They all go through all those things, but they bounce back and they're more resilient. And, yes, they take a lot more work, but the payback is there. Uh, but what is different to me that I've observed is that the people are happier. Mm. They're, they feel good about what they're doing. They're, and when you can connect those people to their customer, they get another layer of reward from the appreciation that the customers can give them. And that is that is the motivation. It's they a beautiful need. cycle. It is it? a beautiful cycle. And that, you know, that builds. And it's when you create that cycle that then you see the younger generation wanting to come on board as well because they can see rather than mum and dad slogging it and getting a bill for transport, mm. all of a sudden they've got, you know, oh, we, we met these great customers and they were really appreciative. And that joy that they get from people actually recognising and appreciating the effort that goes into producing whatever product it is um, is so important. We all need that. Mm. In I mean, like I've just fed off the energy today. Farmers need to feed off the energy of their customers. <clears throat> and the, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful cycle because the, you know, the, the love that farmers put into their land, the land gives back tenfold and you can feel it, as you say, walking onto farms. That is then reflected in the, in the taste the quality of the food, the customers get a buzz about, you know, not just the story but and, and, and the quality, the taste, that gets fed back to the farmers. The farmers then are, you know, thankful for that and they're thankful to the land. It's this beautiful, um, beautiful leap achieved. that happens. Yeah. Um, Rose, I'm conscious of time. You, because you're the boss, you have extra time. Oh. But I've, I've got a question for you. Any, um, without sort of being accused of favouritism, any um, gold nuggets that you want to, just draw upon that you heard today from any of the speak. Anything just went, just stood out as like bang, you know, that was cool. Yeah, look, I think what I, the first session this morning between Charlie and Bruce, 
you know, Bruce is coming from a place, and, and because I've had the privilege of sitting with the elders last night with Bruce, which was just incredibly cool. profound, it was cool, it was just amazing, humbling. I think what I saw was that these people are saying the same thing. You know, it's about caring for the planet. It's about creating, looking after Mother Earth. You know, Bruce uses the language of love, you know, and Charlie talks about, you know, caring for the planet and the soil and the ecology. They might be more technical, but they're saying the same thing. We are all trying, and and I think we've got so much to learn from Aboriginal land management. And what I've seen here in the scenic room through those conversations is there is nothing to fear. We just have to talk and we need to be respectful of each other. So I think we are all coming from it from the same perspective. And I think that the link that we've got between caring for country and caring for our farms and our farming future is the same. Same thing. We're coming from the same area. So why can we not – we need to overcome that. We need to build that. And I think that was the thing that, that it was like an epiphany for me that it's, my God, farmers and Aboriginal people are actually trying to do the, yeah. trying to look after the same land. We yeah, just yeah. need to love each other and work together and learn off each other like we are doing in the room. At the end of the day, everyone's trying to grow food. Yeah. You know, and do their best at it. And just yeah. some people have different benchmarks and some people, you know, less considerate of the resources and, and, the, mm. and, the, and, the, and, the, and what they actually give back. Um, I had oh no that's right one of Bruce's I'm one of my favourite quotes from Bruce this morning was good farming is no harder than bad farming yeah hundred <laughs> percent love that it's so true actually it was yeah, a ripper it is a ripper I had lots of quotes but I didn't bring them with me because they're in my paperwork and you didn't tell me I needed to bring a quote but oh um, no this is a this is all about quote. One one to Charlie, zero to Rose. Um, I have. <laughs> We're not scoring. Thanks for that. Um, well, I've, look, I think this is the other thing that I'm hearing, and that is that creating layers of value rather than volume is the way to go. Oh yeah, that was cool. And that's that's the that's the piece that I think we're all trying to do is create value. Your customers will appreciate it, and um, you'll you'll get that back in spades. So create value. It's not just about turn it, churn and burn. I love that. That's unreal. Um, Rose, you've just hit the 30-minute mark. I think we're done. I think we are. I've got um, some other um, of the presenters and and cool and groovy people here today, this afternoon, to interview and then more tomorrow. So I'm very pumped. I'm so excited to be in the the hay shed. Dave's got the light rigged up over there. I might bring it over here so we can actually see what we're doing. I might get you a beer. When the sun sets. I'll I'll sneak over now. I don't think I'm on. um, Who's next? I think uh, I should know that now. Oh, it's here. Georgina. George, Dr. Oh, Georgina Dr. Davis. Oh, she's at five ten. She is So I won't rock the boat and ask her to come over early unless she can, but I think um She's a bit of a super intelligent woman. Well, she's got an unfair advantage because she's talking tomorrow. I haven't actually heard her talk oh, yet. So I'm yeah, gonna have to just wing it. She'll have she, to she can practice her, her thing. Her, she's her, really her, as a leader of an agricultural organization, she's incredibly <clears> innovative <throat> and <throat> responsive. She's a very dynamic woman and very deep thinker. Thank you so, for the heads up. Anything else yeah. I need to know? She's just a bloody wonderful human. She's ace. She's great. I like her a lot. Okay. We didn't even talk about agritourism. I'll have to do that another day. Oh, we will. I might even try and track you down for a podcast, the proper one. Oh, could we Oh, do? you've just you're in you're in credit now. Oh my god, I've got to go. <laughs> See you later. Thanks, Rose. Bye. <laughs>
Bruce Pascoe, welcome to uh, this episode, whatever, I'm not sure what number it's going to be, Bruce, <laughs> of The Regenerative Journey, and welcome to the dressing room <laughs> yeah, at the uh, at the function centre in Bow Desert. Yeah. Um, welcome, Bruce. Oh, thank you. Bruce, mm. we um, uh, had the pleasure, the, the attendees at the um, Farm to Plate Exchange put on by Regionality, uh, the pleasure of listening to your presentation um, without a pre- without a PowerPoint, which was refreshing. We <laughs> loved. To- <laughs> Is that because you don't need one, do we? Do you? Uh, it's because the old one was out of date. Uh, so much has happened uh, that what I talk about now, I don't have a PowerPoint for, and haven't had time to do one. Mm. And um, you know, I keep threatening to do it, but I just don't get around to it. You know, and like we've had two floods in six weeks, and um, mm. you know that. They're not, you know, I love a good flood, but compared to a fire, um, but there's always a bit of clean-up, you know, so you, yeah, you get a bit busy. There's other stuff to do. And can I say, I don't think you really need one. Don't don't rush out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't worry. Like, honestly, it was so compelling, and I have heard you speak a number of times. Um, last time was at Brunswick, um, uh, Brunswick Heads, you know, just mm. north of Byron Bay there. Mm. Um, that, was, that was fantastic. Yeah. Bruce, you... Um, you said a, a, a lot of um, wonderful things um, in your in your your address. You also said, which I which is a, clearly a theme, and it's a wonderful, refreshing um, theme. And that is that um, you want Australians, all Australians, to engage with the landscape, engage with Australia, and and you want us to interact. With mm. it, which is a really refreshing point of view. Can you sort of expand on that on that theme? What what, what do you mean by engage with it and why? Well, I think um, most Aboriginal people um, want Australians to feel at home. Um, that does mean understanding the history as well, but also to understand the country and to treat her well. So we're um, it comes with responsibility. This is not a gift. You know, there's a responsibility there. Uh, most Aboriginal people want uh, non-Aboriginal people to be part of the country now because the facts are no one's going away, so we're going to have to get on with each other. But the worst thing for country is to have restless spirits. And if you're not engaged with a country, you're not listening to country, you're not watching country, then you're a a bloody nuisance, you know, because you're not not caring. And uh, that's not what we want. Aboriginal people can't afford non-Aboriginal people not to care. How do you, how do people, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a portion of my listeners, Bruce, who are not farmers and not on country necessarily, you know, they're living in cities and so on. How can any sort of tips that you can give them for, you know, how they can actually participate and, and, and interact with, with country? You know, what, what can they support or where can they go? What can they do? Just to be kind to country, you know, um, not poison the soil, not use up all the water. By using Australian plants, your, um, your water use goes down. Um, this country is very dry, driest continent on earth, and we're consuming water at a greater rate than we ever have. The country can't continue like that. So all of those little things... Uh, being good, uh, good consumers—that's um, that is consuming less—is um, very important. But 
engaging with the Aboriginal history of this country as well, not resenting it, not trying to uh, deny that it exists is important and developing a relationship with Aboriginal people and you know, people always say, oh, you know, I don't know many Aboriginal people or I have, I've never met an Aboriginal person, I uh, don't know how to meet Aboriginal people. Um, and my answer to that is teapot. You know, ask people in for a cup of tea because there's, you know, most blackfellas will accept a cup of tea and then you can have a yarn, you know, then, then the relationship is real. Um, it's not... Um, um, you know, it's not an artificial relationship, and uh, this this is a conversation Australians haven't had together. So we need to we need to start. It's a it's it's a bit of a sense not I guess sensitive might, might be the right word, but it's a I know as a as a as a you know white farmer I I was at I've been to a number of um, events in the last couple of months you know where there's been some amazing indigenous um, ceremony and acknowledgement and welcome and. And as a farmer, you know, a steward of the landscape, I felt really underqualified. You know, mm. it's really interesting for me, and it was really the first time earlier this year that that, that was, uh, I d- yeah, I just felt underqualified, you know. So how, how can, you know, farmers like me um, support farmers like you? You know, what, what are the, literally, what are some of the practical things we can be doing, you know, to, to support not just you but the, um, you know, the, the Indigenous peoples of, of Australia, you know? As opposed to say someone yeah. who can just buy, you know, looking to, to buy products yeah. that are Australian. Well, so we need to talk to our government and local councils um, about the realities of Australian history. And Aboriginal people would like to be growing the old foods. We just don't own any land. Uh, there are small pockets of land owned by Aboriginal people, of course, and many of those communities are growing food uh, from the old plants. But the vast majority of us just don't have land. Mm. So having an adult conversation with government about a bit of social justice uh, is very important because there, there are wastelands around that have been destroyed by industrial farming and reliance on European plants and animals uh, that can be repaired by good use. Those, those lands are virtually valueless mm. at the moment. Um, Plenty of them could be returned to Aboriginal people without anyone losing a wink of sleep. Um, and that, that's the sort of thing that non-Aboriginal people can insist on. And that can be pretty, well, I shouldn't say easily done, but the, the first point of contact would be local councils, I'd imagine. They'd probably mm. have lands that they've just don't know what to, literally don't know what to do with. And a lot of our plants will repair that land. So without spending much money at all, um, that, that shire and, or that local government district is going to have better land, mm. land that's looked after, land that they don't have to spray for weeds, land that's actually producing something. It's rateable land, and that can't be a bad thing. Because you know, mm. as, I mean, then it becomes an asset for that that community, doesn't it? Yeah, and uh, Aboriginal people return to the country, mm. um, and um, the social benefits of Aboriginal people living on land, raising their families on the profits of land. Uh, has enormous social benefits. Mm. You said a fascinating thing this morning, Bruce. One of the things you said <clears throat> was, um, it was fantastic, good farming is no harder than bad farming. <laughs> I think that's a ripper. <laughs> yeah, well, 
Tell this me about is, that. Uh, you know, a lot of people have um, told me that by starting to plant perennial grains, they actually work less. They're making more money, but they work less. They have, you know, one bloke said, my wife and I got to know each other because we went on a holiday. We thought we hated each other. <laughs> Had the kids moved out by that stage as well? That helped? Well, I'm not sure, but I, I just thought, you know, you stop mm. work, you have a look around, and you realise your best mate is the one you've been sleeping with. Mm. And, um, you know, it's not a real farming story, is it? It's about relationships. But, <laughs> you know, if farmers are often so pressed for time and so exhausted that um, the home life just disappears. I, I've seen it. You know, I, I've lived in the country all my life. I've seen that happen. Um, but it was just a lovely thing to hear these stories, and I've heard, heard more than a dozen of them, of people realising that they don't have to flog themselves, they don't have to flog the land to make money and to grow things. And um, they can have more time, you know. One bloke had to learn to play cricket again, you know. Because he never had time. What are we going to do? Yeah. Get that old. He, he always thought he never had time. Yeah. No, take Saturdays off. Get that old, what is it, those Greg Chapel, what those scoops? Remember those ones with the scoops in the back of them? Yeah. Some of Nichols, Nicholas. Yeah. <laughs> it was that long ago since I picked up a bat. Well, the Triple S, the Stuart <laughs> Surridge, you know, that was a pretty good one. <laughs> Dig him out of the garage. Um, but that's, I love that because, um, and, and my wife and I were only talking about this the other day, not necessarily in this, using these words, but in sort of that context of like you might be married to you, your wife, your partner, your you know your your other half, but but it's but you can you're allowed to have an affair mm. with the landscape. Mm. You can you know there's, there's romance. The romance doesn't just have to be in your marriage. The romance can also be in the landscape. Yeah, you fall in love with the country. You know, you might be an Australian bloke. You know, and you um, you know might be dedicated to you half a dozen beers at night, you can stop and look at a blue ring. Um, you know, it's not homosexual to um, look at a blue ring and that's not to, um, you know, I'm, I'm not slinging off but no. homosexuality. What I'm saying is that so many Australian straight men are so uptight mm. about loving anything um, that they lose touch with their families, but they also lose touch with the land, you know. Mm. Have a look around. You know, Charlie Massey's book, The Cry of the Reed Wolf, is a really good indication of that. Um, you can be a, you know, six-foot-two farmer and, and you can stop and watch ducks on a dam and it's, it's not a waste of time. And it's, I mean, it's therapeutic. I mean, so many, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's the, it's, it's our office really, isn't it? Mm. You know, that's where we're working. So why wouldn't we make that, um, enjoyable, you know, a cultural experience and appreciation? And as I say to, or suggest to people, you know, stopping and observing and interacting is an act of compassion. Yeah. And they're our coal mine canaries. Um, their health is an indication of what we're doing. Farmer's health um, or the, or the bird's the- health. The country. Country's health, yeah. Country's yeah, health. Yeah. Um, if those birds are happy, mm. we've done – we may not have done something right, but we haven't done something wrong. And every profession ought to be working on that credo that doctors live by, do no harm. And I, I want scientists, I want engineers, I want politicians to adopt that credo. Mm. Just think about what you're doing, 
do your very best not to do any harm. And if you haven't done any good, well, at least we haven't gone backwards. We're, yeah. And just have been conscious of that. Talk about being conscious, Bruce. Um, you mentioned that in terms of um, uh, the cultivation, the production of, of, um, of food, Indigenous um, food, that 1% of the, um, was it the, the, the profit, the revenue, there's, mm. there's a 1% sort of take-home for Indigenous mm. People yeah, of 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 that of that of that hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. We it's not good enough to eat rosella chutney and uh, feel virtuous. Um, you know, we've we've got to make sure that that rosella chutney has an um, intellectual property. It belongs to Aboriginal people, mm. um, but only one percent of it is going back to Aboriginal people. So we've got to ask ourselves a question: Why is that? Mm. And, um, and once again, you turn back to your politicians and say, that doesn't seem right. Mm. As an Australian, you know, country of the fair go, that doesn't seem like a fair go because there are some of those big companies that are um, uh, selling bush tucker under lovely kind of green labels, they're ripping Aboriginal people off. This is why I went back farming, so that we can prove that we can do it, but we can all, we're also in the industry. Uh, we have to um, prove that our culture hasn't been washed away, but we also have to participate and be allowed to participate. And we're lucky to have the farm down on the Wallagra, but that's an accident um, of us getting that. You know, no one helped us get that. Um, we're just lucky uh, we've got that ground. But this is what Australians can do. Uh, they can participate on behalf of Aboriginal people, and uh, intervene. How can let's have a, an intervention? And then we we like a good intervention, a good a mm. good pattern change. Yeah. How can for for a consumer, you know, someone who's um, you know they're looking at buying the Rosella, or the, or they're buying it a they're buying a um, a packet of I don't know the grocery store, and there are finger limes there or something. You know, mm. how can how can they how can they Ensure or understand, you know, potentially which brands are the ones they should be following. Or what, what, when you say they're getting the indigenous, you know, um, people are getting ripped off. What what does that look like? What, are, what what what's the bit that they're getting ripped off about? Is it just because they've just gone here's some seeds, I'm gonna plant them, grow them, sell them? You know, indigenous, you know, traditional owners don't want anything to do with you. What what does that I look would, like? I think you, the consumer chooses, and. Um, you know, it's common for um, uh, consumers to prefer an Australian cheese to a European cheese. It's an intellectual decision um, and an environmental decision because, you know, why are we floating cheese from one side of the world to the other when we, we're capable of doing totally. it? Um, so you can choose to choose Aboriginal products and, and that, that will be a, like a... Um, an intervention on our behalf. And uh, that's why we've called our uh, um, Black Duck Foods mm. because when we start producing those products, um, we want people to be choosing us. Um, a lot of people are going to make a lot of money out of those perennial grains, the tubers, the, the salad vegetables, all of those things. We're not going to stand in the way of anyone doing it, but we're growing them too. Um, We'll tell you the story of them too, mm. and we'll have our language name. We'll be on them. 
choose us, you know. If we run out, you know, go and buy from Coles. <clears throat> so it's about point of difference and the integrity, isn't it? Well, and I think the story is interesting uh, in its own right. And Australians, uh, as lovers of their country, uh, ought to know those stories. And we don't at the moment. Mm. And it's a really good story, a very compelling story. It's a very environmental story and socially just. So I I can't see uh, any downside. Bruce, um, I've just looked at the time, 16 and a half minutes. I've, I've, I've overstayed <laughs> the welcome by a minute. That went quickly, didn't it? Um, can you tell us about any – oh, can I do quick, two quick questions? Yeah. <laughs> the, you said, and it was, again, another gem, you're here talking about love, not tractors. <laughs> can you, can you I mean, We sort of touched on it, but is there anything else you want to add to that, that statement? Which is lovely yeah. because – you were, that, that, yeah, yeah. That, that word was in there. We really have to respect our country. Look, I love tractors. I've got two of them, a red one and a blue one. <laughs> um, they're all both old. Um, they both still go. I've got a Ewan lad on the farm who actually loves machines and he keeps them running for me, so I don't need a new tractor. I, but um, I, I, what I do say to the lads is be careful where you take it. You know, choose your old track. Don't put tracks all over the farm. And um, every time you be conscious of when you're running over grain, mm. you know, try and not do it. Try and avoid it if you can. Um, be kind to the country. So that that's what I mean about love, not tractors. You know, the tractors are incredible thing. You know, we couldn't have operated without that red tractor. Um, you know, it's just been you know slasher on the back, you know, bucket on the front. It's just the ideal combination, and but we've got to be conscious that that's not all that farming is. Farming is trying to hold water onto your property. And we, we did that simply by growing long grass and letting it die. And then and now we're harvesting. Mm. But we, we, we went from no soil um, to some soil, and now that amount of soil is increasing. And after the fires, I thought everything had gone in terms of wildlife. But I was cleaning up uh, some limbs and trunks um, after the fire, pushing them together, and um, I realised I had done arts. I'd never seen them before. And they're creatures, they're grain eaters. I'd never seen one in, you know, 70-odd years on the planet. And I realised I had them on the property. And they are there because of our grain. Is that is it a is it a marsupial? Is it an insect? A little a, miniature kangaroo. Yeah, dang it. Um, and very um, it's got a it's got a bit of character, you know. It's got an opinion about itself. This little thing <laughs> because we're we're sun drying our grain before we thresh it. You know, this is the stage we're at where everything is manual, and so we've been uh, dragging the grain out on tarps into the sun every day to dry it off and. The Dunarts arrived, and they reckon they own the grain. So this little tiny creature, which is no bigger than a, not much bigger than a house mouse, it'll run at you, um, saying, "No, no, <laughs> that's my grain. No, don't don't you? Think I about sleep. It. I sleep there." Yeah, right. um, and so by allowing the grain to grow, mm. we've we've brought back this little thing. Mm. Um, and it was a thrill for me just to see the animal, but it also shows you what's happening to country. 
um, you know, we call our country, um, call our company Black Duck Foods, and we've got more black ducks than we've ever seen. And to think that that little donut was somewhere mm. surviving in a pocket in a corner mm. somehow, and then you, you've come along and, and opened a window, and they've just gone, you beauty. Yeah, they probably well, they, breed like they've proliferated too. because of the grain, is yeah. it? Yeah. And, you know, I'm just listening to Charlie Massey before about length of pasture and um, uh, how you, you know, you keep your the root mass of your pasture intact. And that's all we did. Mm. We just um, allowed the grass to grow. Uh, we didn't flog its guts out. You know, farmers think that if all their grass is half an inch high, that they've done a real good job. But, you know, we, we now know the benefits of strip grazing and things like that. We did it by getting rid of all the animals mm-hmm. entirely, just so we could concentrate on our grains. But we probably introduce a few stock uh, later on because we've got grass to burn. Yeah. Um, Bruce, one last question. Projects, is that, you know, what, what, what I know that a couple of months ago you, it was um, creation of a of a, of a uh a charity or a trust that mm. you know um, up there at Brunswick, or well, that was mm. that was one of the. How can people support you? You're probably not sort of someone who goes and bangs a drum too much, but what? How can people listening to this support Black Duck Foods or sort of you know apart from buying your products? Yeah. Well, you know we've we've got a website, Black Duck Foods, and um, we've got a a board, and we're we're trying to raise money to uh, employ more people. Uh, because we're we're on the threshold of really good sales, but we're not quite there yet, and uh, we there's a bit of uh, engineering to be done. You know, there's a we 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 know the kind of harvester we want. We just haven't built it yet, and um, so we've got a local Aboriginal man who's um, who works with sheet metal, uh, a bit of an engineer. We're going to employ him to build us this harvester. You know, and it's going to be. It's going to be um, a fantastic thing. And our aim in doing this is that he gets an industry out of it as well. But he, he stops, um, you know, repairing motorbikes and starts selling harvesters around mm. the country because mm. as more and more Australians get into it, um, a, de- a design for purpose harvester will, will sell pretty well. And people adapting to this new new. New type of farming, new opportunities. It's a wonderful mm. thing. We're on Mananjali country up here, Bruce. Mm. Have you been here up at this this part of the world? I have. Um, I've never been to Bow Desert, but I've I've been up in around the country. And you know the um, those lovely women this morning told me that Manan means the black dirt. Mm. You know, you go further out west near Brewarrina, and it's the division between red and black dirt. And but Manan means black soil. Mm. Uh, so for an agricultural conference. You're on good ground when the people call themselves black dirt. And it's stunning, stunning landscape. I drove from mm. the east, quite hilly and mm. windy, and then sort of you come out here and it's just amazing, you know. I, I, I mm. haven't got time to go further west, but um, beautiful part of the world. Mm. Bruce, um, we've so overstayed the welcome, eight and a half minutes <laughs> over. <laughs> What's Rose going to say? You're mm. abusing my, my guests. Oh, poor Rose. <laughs> Bruce, I have um, uh, very much enjoyed our chat. Um, I'll be catching up with you in a couple of weeks' time in Sydney yeah. um, at Fairlight 
Butcher Ryan Watson's little um, uh, event there on the first of June. Mm. This, I'm not sure when this is going to come out, but and tickets sold out within 24 hours, Bruce. So you're probably a popular bloke, whether you like mm. it or not. Mm. People like you and your books. Um, I want to get you to sign a couple of the books. Um, they're in front of me there. But um, fascinating chat, Bruce. Thank you so much for for spending your time and and, and sharing your wisdom. I know you're heading heading south again um, today, so I trust you have mm. a safe trip home and, and you get time to sit there on the porch with your dog and have a cup of tea. Yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to, poor old thing. And write something. Yeah. Yeah, well, I've you're, got to do that. As you said, you are a writer. That's the trade, yeah. you got to, It's your fault for talk, being a talker too. My grandmother's fault. <laughs> Is that? She was a writer? <laughs> no, she was. She my, poor thing couldn't read, um, but she made sure I could. Yeah, nice one. Well, what a lovely, what a lovely, lovely legacy you're you're um, yeah. you're rolling out, and the legacy of your books, Bruce. Thank you. We'll wrap it up, and I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks' time. Good on you, mate. Look forward to it. Are you looking for more information to assist you on your regenerative journey? We've created an online community of supporters with exclusive access to interview transcripts, live online Q and A sessions with Charlie and his interviewees as well as the opportunity to be interviewed on the show yourself. If you would like to be part of this community or would simply like to contribute to the development of the podcast series, please make your way to patreon.com forward slash The Regenerative Journey Podcast. We look forward to you becoming a member of the Regenerative Journey community. Let's get back to this week's episode. Oh, Georgina, we're on. Just as we the are. is that applause for you? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. It will be. Um, Doctor Georgina Davis, welcome to the Regenerative Journey. Thank you. We are sitting um, in a hay shed on Tomarup Farm, mm-hmm. and in the background, for those listening, uh, you'll hear um, we're actually at the evening function. It's a sort of pre-dinner chit chat and we uh, quite close to it so we can hear that in the background so please excuse the um i think it's rose there talking now who i just interviewed um before um georgina um thank you for your time you clearly had no warning about this at all and you're totally not on the a spot. dicky bird but thank you very much for having me <laughs> now if i move your microphone it's don't don't uh, don't be scared i'm just adjusting it so it's it's about that far from your your beak there um Georgina, you are um, you're on tomorrow as part of a panel session. What what is just to give us sort of a bit of a an idea of what that panel session is talking about to to then put it into context of your your background, your experience. What's what is the panel session you're on tomorrow? So it's setting the background of what's happening here in Queensland. So I'll be covering some of the challenges that the industry is seeing at the moment, but then moving very quickly on to what the opportunities are. Uh, 70% of Queensland is still drought declared. Mm. Um, So we do have our challenges, but we're nearly a $20 billion industry. And in my view, and I may be biased, uh, Queensland's agricultural sector is the most vibrant. We have the widest range of commodities in terms of we are the only state where you can get mangoes to truffles. Mm. We've got beautiful produce, beautiful climates, um, and... Really, you know, the future is very positive for Queensland's agricultural sector, despite the challenges that are posed by our climate. What I neglected to tell listeners is that you're actually the CEO of the Queensland Farmers Federation. Apparently so. 
<laughs> How long have you been in that role? So I started in November 2019, just before a global pandemic wow. and everything else. But as I said, the agricultural sector, it's been business as usual for us. How? What about um, things like... Uh, you know, fruit picking and getting 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 harvest done with no backpack, backpackers being uh, well not around apart from Aussie ones, but they might have been getting paid to stay at home anyway. What, what was that? Was that one of the biggest challenges for the for the industry, not it, just Queensland but everywhere? But your experience? It was, and Queensland's actually been very negatively impacted mm. by the lack of, um, I suppose, travel between the borders. So at the moment, we're about 12,000 workers short in Queensland, so about 9,000 for our horticultural industries. And then we're seeing now shortages for the crush coming up, cotton, the intensive animal industries. So... The fact that our borders are closed is a significant issue, not just what I would term, as you said, backpacker labour, but also those visa workers that we would get from the Pacific. Mm. Um, and it is challenging to try and motivate um, young people to come into our sector and to actually find that domestic flow of staff. Um, are you the first female CEO of Queensland Farmers Federation? I'm absolutely not, actually. I've uh, followed in the amazing footsteps of a number of women before me. Fantastic. So um, we had a lady called Ruth who was previously CEO of the Rice Association. So um, she actually employed me. And then before Ruth, um, we actually had a lady called, um, I'm trying to think now, Oh, my Lord, I can't think of her name. But um, she's now the CEO of Food Bank, and she's doing amazing stuff. And there is still actually a really close collaboration between Queensland farmers and the food that they donate to Food Bank um, because of her relationship and her leadership. So Food Bank are doing some amazing things. Um. What just while we're on on women in ag, what's what from your you know from your current position and 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 maybe even before that, what's what's your sort of sense of progress there? And when I say progress, are there are we uh, are there you seeing more women in agriculture? Um, my perspective is you know they're a bit handier than blokes generally. Um, yeah. What what? <laughs> That's our ability to multitask. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. I'm amazed. I can actually have the video going at the same time, and the audio as well. That is a significant accomplishment for for a male. I got to say. So tell me about that because it's. I have my view, but I'm I'm more interested in, in yours and what what you're seeing. You know, is it is it positive? Is it what, what's happening in the space? Right, the future for agriculture is very positive. Um, we are seeing. Um, that we are attracting a new generation, a young generation, a generation that for the most part actually is very highly skilled and very highly educated. Now, we know a lot of the women who work in agriculture actually have a range of tertiary education. Um, and because of how some of the uh, farms within farming families pass, where they pass to the male heirs, um, what that means is that the women who marry into agriculture don't always have an agricultural background, but they do bring a unique skill set from the industries that they've previously worked with. 
and they also have, as I said, that really high level of education. The one risk we do have, and uh, QFF actually released a report on this about six to seven weeks ago, was that a lot of women actually have financial instability who work in the agricultural sector because um, we see it in the census where the women who work on farm because they're family members aren't actually classed as workers. So they're almost an invisible workforce, but because they're not classed as workers, they're not being paid wages. They're not being paid a super. Mm. Um, so when they get to old age, that does leave them very financially insecure. So there are definitely some challenges there. Um, I'm a big fan. I think that the future of agriculture, not just Australia but globally, is in the ha- not or in the hands of. Not to put too you know fine a point on it or or dump all that responsibility on women, but I think that the the real progress has been and will be made. By women, I think mm-hmm. they just they've just got a bit more of a sharper, keener mind about things, and can sort of. I was talking to um, David Westbrook, who um, th- that interview um, uh, with him and um, on my on the show, Regenerative Journey, um, was released today. He talked about two ladders: the ego ladder and the um, oh, I forget now the purpose ladder. You know, and 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 we both agree that men probably spend a bit too much of their time on the on the ego ladder, climbing that ladder. That's their intention. And women sort of, I don't know how much time they spend on the ego ladder, but I think they're a bit more comfortable on the purpose ladder, which is, which is, you know, which is a wonderful thing. It is. And what our research has really shown us is that the women sort of keep the farms going um, when things get difficult. So they are the main contributor of off-farm income back to the farm when, for example, we're in the middle of drought or things are difficult on the farm they bring that income back to the farm keep the farm going and we also see in terms of the levels of diversification so we're talking a lot here at this session about agritourism agri-processing in many cases the examples that I see are always being led by women and this is a perfect example where we're actually tonight at the Tomarups farm with Kay Um, and Kay is really trailblazing in terms of this farm now has agri-processing and agri-tourism and that's something that Kay has brought into the farm those skills and those expertise where she married into the dairy farm and what's great about that also is that in a lot of these agricultural sort of diversification processes is it means actually setting up a different business. So you have the farming entity that very often is in a trust or another type of entity, business entity, and then the farming um, agri-processing new entities or agri-tourism entities are a separate business. And that's really good for the women who set them up because at that point, all of a sudden, they're on the payroll, they're recognised as workers, and very often they're paying themselves superannuation, they're paying themselves work cover payments and insurance. And that's fabulous for everybody. Well, they've got some skin in the game, haven't they? They really have. And it's a wonderful point that marrying into a farming family, and and again, Kay just mentioned it before, didn't she, about marrying Dave, Dave, you know, on the farm here. And it's that injection of um, not just skills, you know, it might be marketing or it might be, I don't know, any other, a lot of skills that farmers don't have, you know, um, not sort of that, that aren't necessarily farm related, but bring them on as a positive thing. Also, not having the baggage of being a farmer, mm. you know, not sort of going, oh no, this is the way we do it, 
you know, yeah. but they're really good at asking questions. A asking different perspective, questions. not accepting about that's how we've always done it. And I think that injection of new perspective is really important. Really healthy. Um, talking about healthy, I just know on my notes here, um, Georgina, the in August 2020, the Queensland Farmers Federation uh, released its agritourism roadmap. Tell me about that. Given so, we're at a sort of agritourism conference, I, I guess there's some parallels there. There is. And what we really noticed was that agritourism in Queensland is quite nascent compared to other states. But then when we look at other states and really break down the type of agritourism experiences they have, it's very much being led by cellar door. And then the cellar doors become gin distilleries as well. And it's it sort of then creates a cluster for other types of tourism and agritourism to build on. We haven't really had that in Queensland. And when we actually had a look at it, we've got, as I said, we've got more diversification and more diverse products and crops than any other region or state in Queen, um, in Australia. Mm. So we really want to sort of, what we started saying is, well, what are the barriers? How do we get rid of the barriers? But then what are the opportunities? And that roadmap, really, when we looked at it, we think that the agritourism industry is worth about $5 billion to the Queensland economy by 2030. So it's something we've not adequately explored, but it's got great potential. We've been working with regionality who've obviously organised this conference in the development of that roadmap, in the development of other documents to try and remove those barriers. Local government planning is a big issue. Um, but then how do we also recognise the opportunities? And we actually did some work as well with Airbnb. Only two weeks ago, we ran some webinars for farmers, just two webinars. We had over 80 farmers participate in those webinars, asking some very interesting questions. And since then, a lot of those farmers have actually signed up. And the great news is, particularly with our borders closed, more people are looking for domestic tourism experiences, more people actually do have questions about where their food comes from. They do want to get out onto farm and ask those questions. They do want their children to know where the carrots come from and those sorts of things. And we're actually seeing now that if you try and book a farm stay for Queensland on Airbnb, they are booked for some time. So please get in there quickly for Christmas. <laughs> you get in there now because there won't be anything left next There really week. won't be. Um, but it is, it is the... Um, it's a real sleeper, isn't it? That you know, farms, uh, and often I guess farms who are on farmers are on their farms. It's their workplace. They don't necessarily, understandably, see its beauty or see the see have a you know uh, they have a particular perspective, which is generally work related, and there's an appreciation, I'm sure. But isn't it interesting that they are in some of the most beautiful parts of Queensland, Australia, and they're sitting on these vistas, these aesthetically pleasing you know valleys and places just like here and um it's a whole nother enterprise and opportunity isn't it obviously there's a bit of infrastructure maybe and some regulations to get around council and so on but it's a the, the massive massive opportunity which i think is um uh, a whole nother thing just a quick um, little story rose told me before she was working with a mob in um Queensland somewhere and, you know, sort of talking to local council saying, look, oh, no, no, she was working with a group and then I think the local tourism mob said, you might know this one, um, said, oh, we, you know, trying to hunt her out of town basically saying, yeah, we don't do agro-tourism up here, we do reef and, you know, 
it's it's reef and reef and rainforest. That's their tourism thing. It's like, hello, don't every single one of them eat food Absolutely. when they're up here? So why wouldn't that be interesting? But anyway, mm. I, I'm, I trust that that was a successful little um, uh, program she ran up there. Um, Georgina, um, there's been a theme certainly today and this morning, oh, well, all day really while we're at the Bow Desert there, um, about regenerative agriculture, Indigenous cultural um, practices. Um, what is... D- does the uh, Queensland um, Farmers Federation have a, uh, if not a policy, but a sort of a view or a um, where they sit with that sort of style of, of farming, which, which, simply put, might be more working more closely with nature? Absolutely supportive. So it's not just about regenerative and the opportunities they bring. We've seen new green market mechanisms, so more opportunities for carbon trading, although that is incredibly complex. (laughs) Um, I have problems understanding it, and farmers, you know, it's not their day job. But there's more we can be doing with carbon. We're also now seeing the federal government develop biodiversity credits, And the Queensland government in October last year released the first reef credits. Um, So there's a lot of green market mechanism opportunity for farmers. It's about, though, the farmers being able to easily access, which means they need to, the systems need to be transparent. They need to understand how they can participate. Um, And then they can even get to the stage, I think, where they can stack some of these credits. Um, and that again brings more on farm income. It keeps them in agriculture. Um, it improves the environment that we live in, which ultimately improves the productivity and the profitability of the farming that we're undertaking. So lots of opportunities and QFF, we were very supportive. Um, about four years ago, the Queensland government made amendments to the Water Act to include things like elements such as valuing cultural water and cultural flows. Those are now embedded in our water legislation, and so is climate change. And we were very supportive of those measures. Um, And then at the moment, we're looking also at land certification models, which could incorporate Regen Ag. They could incorporate existing credit models, Really, you know, although it's a new market, it's emerging, it's going to be the future of where agriculture goes to, particularly if we're looking beyond our borders. So one of the discussions we had today at the forum was about um, some of the countries like the European Union actually bringing about legislation that looks at the emission intensity of their imported goods to mm. make sure that they align mm-hmm. with their domestic production, which is fair enough. Yeah, um, it's not protectionism. That's just ensuring a level playing field with the producers and the farmers that they have in those countries. And quite frankly, we could do with some more of it here in Australia, where our farmers are held to very high environmental standards. They're held to very high animal husbandry and animal health standards and then we import goods that you know are well below that standard so i'd like to see a level playing field here in australia as well for our farmers it's a bit of i reckon it's a disgrace really i was talking to a, um, a stone fruit farmer or ex-stone fruit farmer at byron bay the other day nashi if you're listening um he had been doing it for decades and the howard government put in the the um 
oh, whatever it was, trade um, agreements, free trade, maybe it was. I can't remember now. Back in the, I guess, in the nineties, and it just, you know, there was no more seasonality. There was no more the top end, and he was had sort of early, early maturing fruit, and it just was just this crappy pr- produce where, that is that is grown in Australia, and it's some of the best in the world. Why they thought that was a good idea to get mm. some brownie points with whoever it was, you know, what other countries. I think it's it's a it's a horrible it's a it's a disgrace. Um one last question. You're a doctor, Dr. Georgina. You, what was what did you do? Is it PhD, doctor? Are you medical uh, doctor? Oh, what's a doctor? Are you? No, and I only use the doctor if I'm complaining. I'm just Georgina <laughs> most of the other time. Um but I'm actually a doctor of engineering. So wow. my background's uh, the doctorate was actually environmental technology, wow, looking cool. at advanced biopolymers and organic management. So it's gross. Yeah, well, that's the next opportunity as well for agriculture here, particularly in Queensland, particularly for things like our sugar industries. Yeah. About how do we value our biomass going forward? So lots of opportunity. Well, you are in the in the in the hot seat there, or the right seat, I should say. Um, Georgina, thank you for your time, and you perform magnificently given you had no warning at all um you've set a whole you've set a new standard i do hope so thank you thanks thank you for your time. we'll speak soon bye g'day Stuart larson thanks charlie hey. how are you good good very good great thanks. to see you here today and um thank you for your time did you did how much warning did you have about this uh, a couple of days, yeah, which is no, no problem. Yeah. Now, the good thing is um, I just interviewed uh, Georgina and she hasn't actually spoken yet, so we, we found um, we found some questions to ask and, and we ran over time, which is awesome. Um, I am in a similar situation. Even though you spoke today, I wasn't there. I was interviewing Bruce Pascoe. Oh, so, righto. So, yep, yep. so we're just going to – this is all very fresh. Yep, no so, good. <laughs> so, Stuart – can you give me a bit of a rundown on um, on your on on the session? I'm just going to you, you just start because of what I what I what I should have done was found they're pretty rowdy that mob over there. They are a bit. What who's on there at the moment? Not sure. <laughs> you were just enjoy, you just enjoying your um, enjoying your beers too much. Now, Stuart, you were on um, your session was the case for renewal farm renewal case studies farmers doing it differently. Sure. Well, let's start there. Well, what are you doing differently, Stuart? Uh, I guess our story goes back um, thirty years, mm. and um, we were conventional farmers, um, and as good as anybody. What were, you, what, were you, what were you growing? Uh, mainly, well, we went from the dairy industry into the beef industry, and then into soy, and um, we basically—you might not believe it—but back in those days. Um, the, before the cotton industry started, we had very few controlled chemicals, you might say, in the what I call the classic or the conventional industry. And um, we we used to use a five-year rotation on um, basically soy and rosegrass. And, you know, we then had to try and make a... Um, Make a dollar out of when we couldn't didn't have the chemicals to to uh, the broad leaves and whatever. We then developed markets for our rose grasses into the Middle East, into Saudi and UAE. Went into um, basically hay over there, in the, and then they'd re- plough it out and then go into winter crop, uh, winter wheat. So, the, so just on that one, so the rose grass was something you sowed. We sowed it. Yeah, you yep. sowed it, and then that was yeah. So you cut it for hay. 
Well, no, we harvested the seed. Oh, the seed. Yeah. Oh, and they grew, what would that, then you'd sell them the seed? We sold the seed and um, that went, it was, a, you know, you might say the petrodollar. Mm. And um, it was a good market and we had it for a number of years. These days it's more relaxed because they realise that their aquifers are better kept rather than emptied. Um, to produce hay. It took them a while but, to work that out, didn't it? Well, no, it was a competition <laughs> between the sheikhs over there that they used to see who could, if you flew over Saudi, it was covered in in, um, in pivots. Yeah. It looked like it had the mumps and the measles. And um, yeah, right. so then what happened, we, we, in our quest to produce huge amounts of seed and supposedly, as I learned in agriculture the in education days, um, the more you put on, the more you should return. That wasn't the case. We, in fact, chased higher yields in um, in our seed crops and basically the, the telling tale of it was that we'd killed our soils with the use of chemicals and high rates of nitrogen and and, and we were on a hiding to nothing. We were, our, our costs were going through the roof. Our returns were going the other way. So we... we we recognised that and, and basically our soils were dead. And what happened behind the headers where we'd, 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 the windrows would be behind the headers and in the spring we'd have all these weeds come up and um, basically we built up this huge organic matter level on top of the soil. There was a home for thistles and everything else and um, when it rained you could smell the soil. It was off, simple as that. It was biologically dead. So... We then decided to look around the world and see what else people were farming and how they were dealing with it. And, and, when, and when was this, just to set the sort of time frame? Uh, this was in the seventies, um, seventy three, seventy four, and um, basically, oh, mid to the mid 70s anyway. And basically what we then had to do was how we're going to repair these soils. And so we jumped in a plane and went and finished up with the Amish in the Middle East. And in um, middle middle America, and they had beautiful soils, but they also had beautiful composting techniques. And compost, and even today, it's still the secret to our farming. And making good compost, not not just regenerated, you might say uh, organic matter, but properly yeah. made. Yeah, not the stuff that the council puts through a thing and dumps on the side of the road. You know, like you know, at, the, at their depot with the old wooden couches that are chewed up as well and all that. Charlie, you, you hit it right on the head. Probably one of the biggest problems we've got in the in the compost industry is that, you know, because you put a heap of organic matter into a row or a static or whatever pile or whatever and turn it two or three times and call it compost and sell it to the open market, that has done a lot of harm. You know, not being properly managed and properly made and a good, as they say, a good, a, a well-made compost is equivalent to ten ton of raw manure, and that's pretty much if you work that in the cost of raw manures, that's that's a, a significant amount of money. So, so just so just to clarify that, so you're talking about say a ton of compost is equivalent to ten, 10 ton of raw manure, yeah, yeah. putting out on the field, and 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 the, and, a, and as well as the sort of the um, that ratio, the fact putting raw manure, whether it's chicken, pig cow onto the paddock it's not it's not bioavailable it's disappearing in the atmosphere it's, exactly it's a it's a bit of a waste of time really i mean unless um got... yeah a major part of it goes up there or mm. down there mm. and you know it's not not so much that it's it's all the the other things that are added into those industries in 
you need to go through a composting process. We use what we call NOP or NOP. That's an American standard where you've got to you've got to prove that that compost has gone to 70 degrees for four to five days. So that kills any pathogens or weeds or anything in there, and that doesn't happen in a lot of composting processes. So we're monitored on that mm-hmm. through our standards. What does that do? Um, we could talk for hours about this. It fascinates me, Stuart. Um, that seventy degrees is that also? It might be killing pathogens, but what's it doing to the good good microbes? Is it, is um, it? basically you're zonking them, and yeah. you know you, you then what happens in your process? You then rebuild those. Uh, you might say trophic levels, yeah. as we call them, where you start with your bacteria and then or the ciliates, and then your bacteria, then your fungi, then your protozoa, your nematodes, and on you go from there. But yeah, it, it's it's a it's probably the you might say you're nuking the product for starters, and that's important because um, there are a lot of weed seeds and there are a lot of things that are like you might say um, probiotics and biotics oh, and whatever yeah. are in there. God knows, I guess in some maybe not yours, but I know a lot of cases the ingredients. God knows where it's come from. You don't really know the source. You know, well, you don't know. And, mm. No, no, true. More. Keep going. This is cool. Yeah. So, you know, the making of compost is, um, we've got these days, um, the more intense you get, and I always say that um, people basically um, see with their nose in the sense that if there's anything wrong, they'll report it because of the smell. Now, technically, you shouldn't have high odours except for that first one or two days, and then you'll get some, say, raw manure odour, but... Generally, you shouldn't have, from there, you shouldn't be able to hell a, uh, smell a compost set up. Mm. If you do, you know you've got something wrong. But these days, we've gone a little bit more professional and we're relying on, um, you know, whoever it is that's doing the work. We use the thing called Compost Manager. And that's been designed in London or, or in, um, in, 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 in England anyway. And basically what it is, that the... Whoever's testing each day, or well, we do it three times a week, where they go in, they spear the compost, and it tells us what emissions are there. It tells us whether we should turn it, the moisture contents, so it takes the man out of it. So basically what that is, it's uh, you can do that. I mean, physically yourself, you can, after making compost for many years, probably we're doing the same thing, but it's not recorded we can plug it into your computer and it prints you a report. So it's like a probe that goes in. It's a probe that goes in, yeah. and basically we do. It goes in the same same distance in mm. every row, mm. and the same we do about four in a row, mm. uh, four up each side, and then the, the basically it gets sorted out. So when if we get a complaint, if, and we don't ever get one, but if we did get one, or EPA came along and said, "Look, we think that we need to see your records," we just pop that up. So so get uh, that get that up, yeah. Well, more or less, um, <laughs> but more. It's it's also also we're protecting our own people. Totally, yeah. Totally, yeah. Mm. Um, what where else? What else? So, so, so making compost, selling compost to to farmers, and and, and using it yourself, obviously. Well, well we use we double crop, yeah. um, so we use a summer crop and a winter crop. We always put a percentage of of depends on how our workload. But we, the minimum would be a ton to the hectare because once our soils are active, and we're only repairing, we're not we're not we're not getting it going. If you know what I mean, a lot of soils are degraded, and until you get to sort of you know four uh, percent 
you know, organic matter in there and you've got the bugs in there and you look at them under the microscope and know they're right, um, we're only maintaining because every time we run a vehicle over the, the land and harvest it or whatever we do, uh, sow it, we're damaging uh, biology. So we've, we've got to repair that every time. That's the way we look at it. And if we don't do it, it doesn't matter that much because we can pick it up the next season anyway. So. Um, and also, you're still selling seed, though, Mara Seeds. You're still yep. still producing seed that you're selling. We run. We've got two major companies, and the third one which we've developed lately. And um, Mara Seeds is the old production company, but it, it produces the seeds, and we still produce our, ro- our tropical grasses like our rose grass and cerarias and that sort of thing, which mainly get exported into South America. And the rose grass that market's just diminished a bit, but we're doing a little bit more work in. In, in marketing that way, in that we're doing what we call charcoat, which is our biochar coated seeds. Anything's got that's sold basically is coated these days. And but Mara Seeds itself, it, it's a um, it's the primary production side of our livestock, uh, our cropping, uh, our seeds business, and uh, a new one that's been introduced of, of late is the hemp industry, which. We can talk about that in a minute. But, you know, the livestock side, what we do there is it's a, we export our own beef into mainly Singapore and Vietnam. It's under the name Mara Organic Meats. And um, it's, um, um, yeah, it's it's been, we didn't find the market, they found us. In the sense that it goes into Ryan's groceries and whatever in in, um, in Singapore. And um, we cry back and it's killed locally. And that's you get organic certification on that? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yep, yep. So that's our beef side. And then our soy side is mainly uh, our major market is into Vita Soy, which we do a large part of their organic for milk. And then the um, the wheats and byproducts of, say, the soy, which is made into um, uh, we, we produce our full fat and defatted meals. And they go then into the soft side of the, the, the business, which is about um, basically making fertiliser mixes or compost mixes and granulated fertilisers. And uh, also it's about stock feeds. But everything we do, it doesn't matter what it is, has biochar in it. So we get 2% biochar in most of our feeds, um, most of our stock feeds. In our fertilisers and, and particularly in our compost, we use up to 5 or 10% of biochar in there to... It, it's, it just basically shortens the production time, uh, holds the biology, holds the moisture, and it just takes any odour that's likely to be there out. So basically, you know, wherever you've got biochar, whether it be in through an animal or whatever, you're knocking about 50% odour out of... That's the methane, ammonias, whatever, whatever. Are you making that biochar yourself? Yeah, we, we have been... Um, We've just built a new plant, or it's about to be recommissioned, and it's a um, it'll go twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. Gee, mm. So, but it's it's not just about producing biochar itself. When we're producing that, we're producing um, obviously activating phosphate at the same time. We've got a natural uh, product here in Australia called Appetite, which we we sixteen percent P. We activate that up to about thirty percent in through our fluid bed and then our retorts where we go in with the combination of um, the appetite and the wood chip and that produces oops that produces our biochar and produces our activated phosphates. That's either as a 
dicalcium phosphate or a activated phosphate. Wow. Got a bit on, Stuart, haven't you? There's a little bit there, yeah. Um, but, <laughs> we but, probably only just scraped the service, haven't we? Well, in, in, the, in the production of biochar, it's one of those things that, um, um, quite frankly, if you're producing it just as biochar, uh, it'd, it'd be difficult without losing money. Because when you take one tonne of raw materials or biomass, uh, sorry, five tonne of biomass, you can finish up with one tonne of proper, proper biochar. But the side benefits to us are the power generation, syngas to replace um, LP gas, uh, CO2 for storage in, uh, for, for insect storage in silos, uh, plant growth if you want to use it from there, hydrogen which can run the forklifts, um, nitrogen which is taken off it and re-injected back into our fertilisers, uh, into our granules. Um, we also have a plant in the middle called an IRIC, which is a high-speed granulator. That deals with all these products, and it's um, it's purely state of the art stuff. Yeah. And this is all from in the seventies, going. Oh, I reckon we've got to do things differently. Well, no. Well, we were we were in trouble. You know, yeah. In, but in basically, yeah. Yeah. We degraded the soils, and then the opportunities have popped up. You know, and I've got to learn that word no instead of on. You know, it's one of those <laughs> things that. Um, Every day there's, a, there's something comes along that and, and biochar was only introduced to our business probably ten years ago in that we saw another advantage and we, we paid a lot of money in research uh, in through CQU in Rockhampton mainly and that is mainly in the chicken industry and that's where you you have no bird deaths um, basically fifty percent odors gone um, five to eight percent productivity gain all that sort of stuff. And we've transferred that now back into all other industries. Yeah. Um, I'm going to look into. I I, I don't, don't I look. I've got some basic understanding of biochar, but that's fascinating that it, 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 you've thrown it in everywhere. Talking about throwing things in, um, Stuart, you, we've just had a day at Bow Desert, um, listening to some ripping stories from other farmers and Charles Massey and Bruce Pascoe. Any golden nuggets that? that you unearthed today, anything that you heard and went, oh, wow, you know, that, that, I haven't heard that before or that's un, that's unreal? I think some of the interesting stuff that was said there by Charles and um, uh, generally across there was the back to the basics of, you know, what harm's being done to the environment. Uh, we're all part of that and part of what we do in our business is trying to deal with a lot of those things. Like particularly, say, the carbon thing, you know, I think... That's something that we all have a part to play in there. And we're not going to change it overnight, but it's something that can be done, but you still have to have productivity at the end of it. And, you know, I guess it's all right to recognise that we're 2,000 years later or 20,000 years later, we're, but no one knew any different, you know. And, in fact, it's only being pointed out now. And today were some really good talks on the basics of saying, look, you know, we've got a we're up here and uh, do this and do that, and that's 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 everyone can be part of that. So it was quite good. Mm. Um, Stuart, thank you. You've been quite good today too, I have to say. <laughs> I'll have to track you down, come visit. So you're near um, Casino. That's which, right. Which way out of Casino are you? Between Casino and Tenderfield. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. But one of the things we are doing, we've, we've put a lot of work and effort into the hemp industry in the last eight to ten years on trial work, but we've really picked it up now in, in food production type plants 
and I think it's going to become a major part of agriculture purely because of carbon storage. It's it's absolutely a magic plant to wherever you plant it, you can grow any sort of crop after it. So I think it's it's a shining light in agriculture. Do you reckon? Do you reckon I could grow it at Borua down north of an hour a, and a half north of Canberra? Not a problem at all. Really? Yeah. Um, it's more adapting. What happens with hemp? It's um, it's it's regulated on daylight hours. You've got a better chance at the moment because most of our cultivars or what we plant here in Australia are in northern hemisphere, mm. and they're more suited to say Tasmania, Victoria, lower part of Australia, and there are there are cultivars that you can plant there. Our yields here in the tropics, subtropics, are probably 400 kg to the hectare, which is nothing. And we've got them up now at around about 1 to 2 tonne to the hectare, which means that's serious money. Within 12 to 14 weeks, you're producing a crop. And whatever you plant behind it, it just absolutely Goes grows behind. easily. Yeah. Tell me um, one last question, because again, another fascinating topic. What, what When you say you, you know, it's it's worth a lot, who's buying, what are they doing with it? What, what, what's happening with that hemp? Are they turning it into what? Well, there are a lot of parts to that. I mean, you know, there's the, there's the medical end, which is, you know, the high THC end. Yeah. THC end. You've got the the mid range, which range, which is the CBD, CBGs, and then what we're looking at is the food grade side, which is basically about high yields, higher proteins, high high value crop that actually can be, you know, produced in a short period of time in rotations. That's the whole reason we went for it. And, you know, it's one of those things that we're not there yet. We've got a very good scientist that's working with us. And in our business, we we, we, we value the people that are there. Mm. We've got an animal scientist in the office, which he does a lot of the ration stuff. But we've got a very good chemical engineer aboard. And our most of our research is done through CKU or SCU. Or we're doing a very big trial at the moment on using biochar in the field with breeders and there's 120 in each group and that that's their developing a dung beetle that will bury that biochar down <laughs> uh, so it works deep down. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Stuart, that was that was fun. I've got to say, I'm, you've really put a fire under me now. I've got to get out there and check out all this crazy stuff you're doing. It's unreal. <laughs> Come see us. Yeah, look, we've got another day. Um, thank you again for your time um, here at the uh, Farm to Plate Exchange, the regionality conference where at, at um, Tomarup Farm. Actually, Kay Tomarup is my next victim Righto. on the show. I don't think she's here yet. I'd better go and round her up. But, uh, no, Stuart, that good. was wonderful. Thank you. Righto, mate. Good on you, sir. Good on you. Hello, Kay Tomarup. Hello. This is your hay shed. It is. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. For those who haven't listened to the previous interviews and are not Sorry. watching on a video thing, <clears throat> um, we are sitting in in Kay's hay shed with some round bars behind us. The wind's dropped. Um, Dave, he set up a little little little, little light, light there. Yeah, it's, like it's like a lamp. It's a, yep. an, it's an agricultural lamp, <laughs> and here we are, and we're and we're um. Uh, we are here at the evening event on the day one of the Farm to Plate Exchange Regionality Conference, which has been awesome. Yep. Um, firstly, thank you for your time and thank you for hosting tonight's event. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure to I have miss, us here. It's, all, it's amazing. I love this country. Um, I'm not even sure I've been to Bow Desert before. I would have driven through once upon a time. Yeah. It's the, amazing. You're the Kerry Valley, like, people don't know that it's here. It's, it's such a What's secret. What's Kerry Valley? Kerry Valley. Oh, unreal. Yeah. And Dave's family has been here since 1874. So, Get out of here. That's a yeah. while. Yeah. Yep. It's so a, how many generations was that? Um, Dave is fifth. Fifth. Yeah, cool. Mm. 
Um, we're going to get to your contribution to yes. this generation uh, a bit later on. Well, as soon as we need to. Um, <laughs> you were part of a bit of a um, powwow this afternoon with um, Laura and Lauren. Yes. And oh, I should have done my homework and just worked out what was the name of your, se- your, your collaboration. session? Collaboration. Collaboration, mm. which you spoke a lot about, which is awesome. <clears throat> Tell me um, – Tell me about Rose, Rose, because Rose sort of convened this whole thing, and you'd, you'd done some work with Rose, I believe. Yes, ten years ago, we did the agritourism business development program. Um, we were really at a crossroads with our farm, and had just gone through deregulation and taken over the family farm, so dairy farm, dairy yeah. farm. Yes, um, and and in a lot of trouble, really financially, um, probably mentally as well. And we were trying to do something different, but you know, a lot of hurdles and honestly if we hadn't have done that program with Rose, we would we would not be where we are. Like that that um ability to know who we were, what our story was, that taught us everything and we relate everything that we do back to that story and those values. And if it doesn't fit, we don't do it. So before we go to there, <coughs> dive into that, the motivation to well, do something different. Yeah. To keep the farm going. Yeah. yeah we, was it, was we, it a fi- financial and was it mental? Was it, I don't know, um, other, oh, look, what other sort of catalysts were there? Both, I suppose. Mm. Um, there's a lot of pressure. When you're fifth generation, there's a massive amount of pressure. And I know that Dave feels that all the time when we're making decisions, that he's he's the one who has to keep this farm going. They've all been able to do it, so why shouldn't he? And so when deregulation came in and our income halved overnight, and Get out of here that bad. I'm it, just going to move that. Bad. Don't be alarmed. I'm just doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, 65 cents down to 29 overnight. Who thought that was a good idea? Oh, I don't know. So many of our friends who, who, packed up. Who, who did that, though? Was it the dairy industry? Like, what, what, who actually said, right, we're going to halve that? Well, I think that um, there was a lot of discussion in Victoria about um, what the milk price should be, and obviously they can produce milk a lot cheaper than what we can up here. So it didn't really suit, deregulation didn't suit the Queensland industry. Clearly a decision made by people who weren't actually making milk. Doing it. Yeah, it was a very good sales pitch, really good sales pitch. <laughs> what, because it's cheaper and it's cheaper yeah, They could truck it up. If, if there wasn't enough, they were going to be able to truck it up. I believe that was that was the crux oh. of it. Um, but it just, it backfired. You know, we've got, I think it's 300 dairy farms left in Queensland and we had over 2,000. Wow. Just, it just ten wrong. Year, ten years ago. 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Yep. Yeah, and then we really, that deregulation uh, forced Dave's parents to hand over the farm because they would have, we were going broke, just, just there was no way out of it, we were just going broke. So something had to give and... So, so sorry, so yeah, 25 <coughs> cents or 29 cents a litre. 29 is what we went down to. per litre above 29 cents. Co- so the cost oh, of production oh, was absolutely. way above the, what yeah. you're getting. Yeah. Yep. And that has Simple not mass. changed. For 20 years it hasn't changed. The milk price has been lower than the cost of production. And so either you give up, which we were told, you're too small, you'll never survive, get out. And that for Dave that wasn't an option. So cool. we found a way around it. So you spoke to Rose. She gave you a different <coughs> way of looking at the business and other opportunities. Yeah, we, we did a whole um, – uh, basically a whole – review of everything, of our resources in, in every way, financial, human resources, our resources on the farm, and figure out what actually can work for our business. And 
we still do that sort of thing? What what resources do, do we have that can fit into this new idea? So yeah, basically an audit. And I was chatting with yeah. I was chatting with earlier. Was it Rose? I can't remember now. Oh no, it was um, um, Georgina. Oh yes. And she was saying, you know, the, the, the agro-tourism in Queensland and the opportunities there, and really, it's about activating what we, we already have on the farm. Like you've yep. got cottages. Yep, we you have did some cottages up. Tell yep. me, tell me what your what your activation. What did you, what did you activate? Yeah. So we first started with just having day visits to the farm and a bit of camping. And <coughs> by doing that program with Rose, we realised that camping wasn't going to cut it. And that's when we went into doing up one of the houses. And um, look, that money that comes in from there, that that pays for tractors and things that Dave wants to do on the farm. So um, we are using those resources. And I suppose for me as well, I I grew up on a small crop farm, but it's nothing like that? this in the Redlands. Where's that? Um, down by the bay, beautiful red soil, now growing houses. <laughs> oh, Redlands as in on, just over here on the coast here? Yes. Oh. Yep. <laughs> It is, yeah. It's such a <laughs> proliferating, tragedy. great yield of houses down there now. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So very different life. Um, I'd been working in the city, and I think that really helped our business for me to have that totally different perspective on what was going on, and to actually see what we had here, and that people would love it. And I think that when you're a generational farmer, often you can't see what you have right in front of you, and you can miss out on those opportunities because you just can't see how beautiful it is. Um, I'm just writing down that quote. That's a lovely quote. <coughs> You're absolutely right, and that's one of David Marshall and my mentors, a farmer at Burua, where I'm from, and he says, you know, the the best, often the the, the biggest asset a non-farmer has is the fact that they're not a farmer. Yes, <coughs> absolutely. They don't have that liability, and they don't have that the guilt, the guilt. Yep. Yeah. Of, uh, and, and and you turned up, well, not turned up because you'd really been here, but you but you but you had the ability. To look at it with a different lens. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, and a different skill set as well. I, I can't do the things that Dave can do on the farm. I don't have that genera- generational knowledge that he has. But what I do have is the ability to wordsmith and, and talk about our story and be really passionate about what we do and be really authentic. And really, I think it diversifying into agritourism not only helped us financially, but at a time where we felt that we were worth nothing as dairy farmers because if they're not going to pay you properly, then they obviously don't value you. Mm. Um, I think people coming here to the farm and saying, wow, like you guys are amazing, you're doing such a good job. I think if, for Dave, more so than me, that boost to his self-confidence was just what he needed at that time. Did Was was he um, – he's not here so we can talk about him. Yeah. <laughs> was, was, there, was there resistance from him? Was he going, oh, this is not dairy farming? You know, this is like – I mean, was there um, a bit of a – a battle going on in, internally about this whole new thing? Maybe a little bit, um, but I don't I don't think very much. I think that he realised that if we didn't do something different, he was going to be the one that shut down the dairy. And So there was pain he was trying to get away from. Yes, yeah. and, and even the, now, yeah, yeah he um, still struggles with it because the last few years have not been easy here. We've, we've been in a really bad drought for the last two years and – at the end of the year, we, we were pretty close to packing up. We're running out of stock water and running out of money as well. You know, we're trucking feed from Victoria. and so the end of last year? Uh, yes, the end of last year, about yeah. uh, November. So you didn't have the, the <coughs> rain uh, last year, 2020. No. That, but maybe the you know, the New South Wales and Victoria had, you know, to sort of... Yeah, we, I think we got the rain the in drought. December at, at some point. Um, 
so before that, we we were at the stage of what do we do now that we'd sold half our herd, and that nearly broke both of us. Just selling beautiful cows that there was nothing wrong with them. You've had them for 13, 14 years. Um, emotionally, we were pretty broken. So I think that you know that pressure to keep the farm going that's that's always at the back of your mind and thankfully we have had the agritourism so much of that money that bought those loads of hay and everything that was agritourism that that's what funded that and we were not um we, we never hid the fact that that's what people were doing when they were coming here they were saving our cows and saving us and I think those connections that we made because of that and the stories that we tell are always very genuine very authentic and that's why people keep coming back and that's why they connect with what we're doing. Um, and it's not just the people turning up and having a lovely time. You're, you're producing some award-winning products. Yeah, tell, we tell are. Us about yep. them. Um, we went out on our own with the dairy uh, at the beginning of this year, but we had been operating uh, last year as well doing, doing butter and um, really focusing on our the asset that we have, the Jersey cows. So focusing on the cream and, and the quality of it. And uh, last year we won a state award for our butter and we've just won a state award for our creme fraiche. Fantastic. Mm. Uh, just gone, like just, yes, just, 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 just now. Yes, just a few weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, so the nationals are on? Yes, but I didn't enter because I had so many orders for our product after we won the award that I had nothing <laughs> had nothing to put in the nationals. You had nothing so. to, to, to exhibit, <laughs> no. to apply with. Well, that's a good. That's a kind of a good news story, It's a isn't good it? problem to have. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, tell me, Kay, you were at um, the conference today in Bow Desert. Yes. Was, and you were contributing. <clears throat> um, what Were there any sort of nuggets of gold that, that you – any epiphanies today you went, oh, my God, that's amazing, or sort of any takeaways, any revelations you ha- had as you sat there thinking um, about your session but trying to focus on the other ones? Yeah, well, I when I was listening to Charles and Bruce this morning, I found particularly Bruce's um, talk, I really found that so emotional. Mm. I, I really connected with what Bruce was saying and particularly when he said, um, we don't want you to feel sorry for us. We want you to work with us. And for me, that, that just made me think that our family history on this property is so amazing and wouldn't it be great if we could invite the local Indigenous community to, to join with us and do something on this family property because their stories obviously are so important to them and Dave's family stories are so important to him that surely that's a, a beautiful collaboration to have Um and and Chris as well, Chris Eggert. When He's when a classic, isn't oh, he? that Eggsy. was fantastic. Yeah. And and when he spoke about how he felt so ostracised um, from the farming community, I <laughs> I almost burst into tears because we mm. felt that so many times mm. by changing what we do and being small and going out on our own. All those things have happened to us, and I, I just felt for him so much. Just I could feel the pain like, that he was experiencing because we'd had it as well. Talking about pain, um, you know, more and more people, uh, I think it's it's a great thing, are looking at um, agro-tourism and for a number of reasons. Is there anything, you know, and sometimes those reasons are <clears throat> the pain they're getting away from yeah. and sometimes it's not so much the pain um, it's more. Oh my God, that's a that's 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 a that'd be a lovely thing to do. You know, it gets to 
amplify their message. It gets to um, sell direct to customers who really appreciate their food. So many yeah. you know, wonderful things that are drawing people towards doing that sort of thing. What Any tips for our listeners that <clears throat> you can give, you know, if they're – if they are now where you were 10 years ago? Mm. Um, I'd say know who you are. Absolutely know who you are, know your story, know your values and stick to it. You'll, you will be pulled in different directions and told that this is what the customer wants and this is what you'll need to do to be successful. Your customer sees right, right through it. If you're not genuine and authentic and that's not your story, you won't succeed. Stick to it, always. And Rose helped you navigate that, um, identify those values. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, not create the story but to identify the story. Yeah, yeah to, yeah, to really build that, to drag out what what was important to us and what we had to share with people that, that would resonate with them. And that's developed a lot over the years and, and changed probably and, and we've reviewed it a couple of times with Rose over the years saying, you know, this isn't really working for us and we need to, you know, change that a little bit because it it does something to the farmer, it does something to our family life or whatever. So it's it's something that you can adapt and change with but you need to always be happy with what you're doing and don't don't just be pulled into those things that is a nice thing to do for other people. This is your farm. So that you referenced the story, you, you did some work with a um, hotel. Yes. Um, and then you you were, <clears throat> I'm not sure if you use the word regretful, but you certainly said it maybe wasn't the decision you yeah. would have made if you had the yeah. chance to do it again. Yeah, it wasn't a good partnership. <clears throat> and I knew that from the beginning. I had that gut feeling that it their reasons for doing it were not going to fit with what I wanted to get out of it. And I, I chose to ignore that and think about other benefits that would come from it and I was just reminded that you should never do that it's it's always about that gut feeling about knowing that that person has the same values as you and that that value proposition works for both of you um another another que- at least one question okay um the people who come to your farm here and they um experience various aspects of it, what mm. do you think it does for them? What do you see or what, what's, you know, whether it's feedback or you just observe, mm. you know, what does it mean for them to be on ground, kids, families, mums and dads? Yeah, we, we get a lot of people who've been on farms, grandparents that have been on farms, have now have no connection whatsoever with the land and they want their kids to experience what they did as a child. They want their kids to connect with animals, to connect with farmers, they want... They want kids to understand how much work goes into producing food. And I think even the adults that come here are surprised by how much work it is and by the prices that you paid and all of that. We, we're very honest. Any, they can ask us any question they want. We, we answer anything about our business, about you know our lives and whatever. Um, and I think that they really value the fact that they can have a really genuine insight into our family. Is there any, again, talking about tips and things, <clears throat> anyone who's thinking about, oh, yeah, because, I mean, again, for farmers, dairy, cropping, whatever, mm. you know, having strangers turn up to your farm and yep. poke, well, not so much poke around, but you having to sort of, yes. you know, <laughs> have a plan for them. Yes. Um, any sort of tips, any do's and don'ts that, yep. that you can give people? You know, you've got people on farm now. Yes. You, know, you, you have to protect your farm. 
above all, protect your farm and your family. Sort it out in the beginning. Don't just start and say, oh, I think it'll be all right. We have um, pages and pages of insurance documents and procedures and protocols that we have set out. We have signage. We have um, a waiver that everybody signs when they come onto our farm. Um, we have also uh, started a company that runs the tourism as a separate business to the farm. Yep. And we didn't do that in the beginning, and that would be my advice to anybody who's thinking about it. Set it up properly from the beginning because it, it will go well. People do want to experience what farmers have. It's, it's an unknown and mm. it's really exciting for them. So make sure that you take the time to set things up properly in the beginning to protect your family farm because you've worked too hard to lose it. Okay, um, that was wonderful. Thank you again for being <clears throat> for hosting us tonight. I can hear bottles being thrown to rubbish bins <laughs> back there. I dare say it's a, a bit, of, bit of grog being drunk <laughs> over there. I um, had the, the pleasure of um, having a nibble on uh, some ice cream, the butterscotch. Yes. Yep. was delicious. Thank you very much. Um, okay. So just a quick wrap-up, um, ice cream, butter. Creme fraiche, cream, cream. buttermilk. Um, we also do pork, mm. veal, some lamb, uh, the eggs, free-range mm. eggs. So we've got, got a bit going on on the farm. Are you, are you supplying to Harris Farm? Uh, no, we aren't. Um, that, was, that was considered, but um, Jersey milk – Unhomogenized Jersey milk is a bit tricky to um to work with. So yeah, sure. Yeah, but that that is our our next move is um, having our own milk as well, bottling mm. our own milk. So that'll be exciting. I can't wait for that. <laughs> I drive all the way up here just to get a bloody two liter or one liter fifty five hundred mil bottle of it. Well, uh, I intend to win the state award for it next year. So <laughs> for those who can't see the video, there is determination in her eyes. Okay, thank you. That was so um, that was wonderful. And um, again, thank you for hosting tonight's um, dinner. And I look forward to catching up tomorrow. Thank for you the, for the rest of it. Thank you. Pleasure. We're on. Welcome, Kate McBride, to The Regenerative Journey. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure. Um, you are the last victim tonight. Lucky me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and you – so we're here um, at the uh, Farm to Plate Exchange Regionality um, Conference. It's the end of day one. Uh, we're here – I just interviewed um, Kay Tomra, um, had chats about butter, farming – Agro-tourism was, was awesome. Yeah. So um, you – and you um, you spoke this afternoon – this evening, just before dinner. It's quite cold, isn't it? You're, oh, no, no, I'm good. Right? I'm okay, good. good. You're cooling ner- down, you're though. nervous. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be nervous. Um, yeah, about your experiences and – um, for those who um, don't know you, can you give us a little bit of a snapshot, a bit like what you did on the back of the truck there, just like, you know, home, um, that f- fascinating history of uh, 1.1 million hectares? Acres, yeah. Acres, sorry, acres. Um, how many hundreds of thousands of sh- But that was incredible. Can you just give us a, just a bit of a snapshot of, just to set the scene for who is who is Kate McBride? Yeah, so I'm from a sheep property out in western New South Wales. It's called Tolano Station, and today we're half a million acres. We run about 
12,000 sheep and get probably about 12 to 15,000 rangeland bush goats um, off a year. But yeah, Talano, the station has a really incredible history. So of course, um, we do a bit of tourism, people coming around and we share both the Barkindji, so the native, uh, the traditional owners, um, we share their history, but also Talano has a really rich history. So back in its heyday, it was 1,100,000 acres. It ran the whole way to the township of Menindi. We're 45 kilometres away from that. So it was absolutely massive. It, in one year, sure, 336,000 sheep. Um, yeah, they just short the whole year round. Was that year <coughs> using um, uh, mechanical shears or was it the old blade shears? From my understanding, it was the old blade shears. Get out of here. Yeah, How yeah. How many stand shed would that have been? It was Did 24. You? So today um, we still got the original uh, shearing shed. It's eight stand. But, yeah, back then it was 24. And it's really interesting. The more that I've been learning about, um, you know, ag and our soils and our environment and everything, I can see the damage that that actually did to our land. So we don't really use that wool shed at all anymore. It's on the river because, of course, back in the day, so we're on the lower Darling Barker River. Back in the day, um, paddle steamers was massive. We had one of the largest privately owned um, fleets of paddle steamers in the country. So um, all the wool and everything like that went down on it. But yeah, because the shearing shed, there was one shearing shed on the place, essentially, all of the sheep went through that shearing shed. And now it's just filled with um, invasive native scrub and nothing else really grows. So I can see the the damage that that um, overgrazing has done. And it's still, you know, like 150 years later, the land still hasn't recovered. So wow. yeah. That's do, we know, been- do we know how to, do we know, we're, we're so... And this is so typical of our, my interviews. We've just gone so sideways somewhere. What do we know how to do? We know how to repair it. No, this is something that I'm really keen to like start learning. So, like, I've had a um, pretty interesting journey when it comes to agriculture and what I've been doing, and now. I sort of feel like it's time for me to sort of really start learning that and that's what's been incredible about this weekend and hearing like people like Charles Massey speak about regen agriculture. It's just been so eye-opening because um, it is like that regen journey is something that I'm really excited to start. Um, like it's sort of where I see the future of Talano actually going. But I think sometimes it's probably like a young, like from a young person's perspective as well, like where do you start? It's a mm. massive deal. And like our property today is half a million acres. Like where do you start? Well, that is a great question. And I guess you, you might, <clears throat> you know, you start small. You start around the house. Start mm. with a lawn. See what works, I reckon. Yeah. Otherwise, it's like, I'll literally like, okay, well, I don't know. Do you like <laughs> pick a, pick a, you know, get the map and just drop a pen on it and go, well, I'm going to start there. Yeah. Grazing, water retention. Mm. Um, I know you weren't asking the question, but I've just I'm thinking about I'm not <clears throat> I'm not terribly familiar with that country, but I was I was speaking with Bruce Pascoe earlier today, um, grabbed him for a quick interview, and we were talking about that country, and he just he, you know, he appreciates, and it's pretty well documented now that you know that country was very different back then, you know, thousands of years ago, and <clears throat> overgrazing has has done that damage, you know, hopefully not irre- irreversible. We, we'll never probably get back to that point because there's so many variables there now, but um, that may well be your life's journey. Yeah, I don't doubt it. Like, And I'm excited for that. I think it's a really exciting journey and listening to everyone else's journeys, um, how they've sort of started. And, yeah, that's sort of, I suppose, where I'm going to start. But it is really exciting. Like it's a massive sort of like to try and start from somewhere. It's, um, yeah, a big job, but 
I think the benefits, especially seeing it today, like seeing regen agriculture just showcased in the way it was today, like it just filled me with so much hope for what can be achieved. And that's the interesting thing, I think, being out our way. You know, of course, a lot of the um, people that have been on the regen journey have been from different parts of Australia. We are really different out in Western New South Wales, but... Yeah, having my own journey and sort of different experiences and maybe one day as well being able to share with my, like people my region, like agriculture journey, that's sort of really exciting too. Uh, you've already, and your journey's already well underway from what I understand because you have, you've been peering on the, tel- on the telly a bit and of, of late. Tell us about how that sort of, what the catalyst for that was and why and then we'll go from there. I think that's awesome because you are, you know, you're, you talked about you know um, uh, young farmers and the opportunities which I'll get to in your your talk there before, but I'm you know you're well on the way. So let's, yeah. let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah. So um, of course I was born and brought you, up. You, on can, the you can pump your tires up. Like don't go. Oh, well, I won't <laughs> tell them about that bit. Just this is like open slather. Yeah. Well. Um, so born and brought up on the station. Like. It's my heart and soul. It's everything to me. But then moved away and did all my schooling in Adelaide and then finished school in 2015 and went back to the station and the lower Darling Barker, so the river that I've grown up alongside, like spent all my summers in, you know, it was this meeting place for everyone growing up. It was gone. Mm. There was absolutely no water there at all and, and we knew... Had you not seen it in that state before? Not in that state, no. Wow. Um, so the lower Darling Barker, where I'm from, it, like since records began, it never had a no-flow event lasting more than two months. And all of a sudden I came back and we had eight and a half months of a bone-dry river and I just recognised something was wrong and it wasn't because of drought. Like everyone, all the governments and, and people upstream were saying, oh, it's because of drought, there's no inflows, but that's not the reality because, you know, that we've had droughts in the past and we hadn't experienced this, so... That's sort of um, where my journey of advocacy and I suppose being a bit of an environmentalist began and went and um, did a lot of like training myself, media training, learning about the Murray-Darling Basin, trying to work out what's happened, um, what's gone wrong. And we got some water back, which was great. Our community really like, you know, we were putting pressure on politicians, we were trying to raise awareness, but then it rained and everyone goes, oh, it's all good again, don't worry, everything's all sweet. And then all of a sudden, about two years later, we were back on a bone-dry river after we'd had about 12 months or 18 months of, like, any water at all, we were back on a bone-dry river and we just went, like, how can this be possible? How can we, like, and for me, what it triggered inside, like, I had our property, we have a stock and domestic licence. So, you know, of course, I'd always bathed in it. We'd used it for our stock, but that's not what, like, triggered something inside of me. I was like, how can we be treating our environment like this? You know, and then all of a sudden in 2019, we saw the mass fish deaths and um, a video I put up, got six million views it was of my old man and um his good mate dick arnold holding dead murray cod and you know we we still get people from like overseas calling us up every now and again saying what happened here um what what, just just to put the to to, um uh, identify the significance of that those murray cod were how how old about 80 years old 80 year old murray cod and they're drowned they're they're dying because they're because the, the the water's not flowing and they're just rank, stinky, and yeah. and these things have been there for eighty years. 
Exactly. Clearly. And that's the thing. So like we recognised once again, it was like, hang on, this isn't drought again because we've like in Western New South Wales, we know drought. We mm. sort of like have to unfortunately live and breathe it at times. Um, and especially looking at these like 80 year old Murray Cod, we're like, these guys know what drought is too. Mm. These guys, like they're, they're um, you know, the species has evolved to deal with this. And so sort of recognising that and going, okay, well, if it's not drought, that's what we're being told by politicians and other people. If it's not drought, then what is it? And, you know, it was really simple what it was. We're taking too much water from a really like fragile ecosystem, the Murray Darling. Um, and also we're not managing our water resources properly. And that's where my journey really started. Like I never thought I'd be like all of a sudden somewhat of like a water expert, but our whole township <laughs> all of a sudden had to like, it really galvanised our township and we all became water experts. Um, well, that's your bread and butter. That's your, that's the, that literally the, 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 the arteries of your environment. The, the Darling River is the lifeblood of the outback. I've always said it. And, um, you know, it's not just for our environment, but it's for our communities, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal. Like, it is what keeps these areas breathing. And so all of a sudden to have that ripped out, to have the taps turned off, um, it was just absolutely heartbreaking. So, yeah, that's where my sort of um, advocacy journey, I suppose, started a bit. Um, Through the video. So it was like, wow, we're, we're, this video, let's get this girl on, da 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 Yeah, it just sort of kept evolving. Um, and, yeah, over the next week or two, like the media of Australia just like descended upon Menindi, like my hometown was put on the map. Um, and that was really special. But then you sort of realise like, hang on, we're on the map because we've had over a million fish die, um, you know, and we've got dry rivers. And, Is that right? A million fish? Yeah, it was over a million. It was three consecutive mass fish kills. Um, and like, yeah, it was just catastrophic. But that's the thing, like we were facing these issues, not so much fish, mass fish kills, but dry riverbed, huge amounts of blue-green algae. Like we're facing all these issues. And I spoke um, a bit in my speech before about the township of Wilcannia. I mean, that has a male life expectancy of 37 like this is what we're facing in Australia and, and, you know, rural Australia and it's just not getting out there enough. So, yeah, I sort of um, became a bit of a voice for people out there and, like, you know, there are so many people that have an incredible voice out there as well with me. Um, but, yeah, sort of started doing that and then all of a sudden people went like, oh, you're a young female, you must know about drought when the drought was on. So got roped into doing a few things on drought and then it was, you know, oh, you must know about COVID in rural areas and it's sort of become one of these things that the media now that they see me as like a young female who... I suppose has my heart like my head half screwed on. They sort of come to me for um, different things, and yeah, like now I'm here today talking about how we can get young people into agriculture, and um, that's really special for me. Like it's sort of to me, it's a bit like I'm giving back to my community and to like regional Australia as a whole. So you're on just for just for those who want to do a bit of digging around <clears throat> um, Q and A. Um, that went bananas, and then you've been on the project <laughs> a few times. Yeah, um, been I mean, on- I'm, I'm highlighting just to, just to highlight the fact that. Um, again, your journey has begun, you know, and maybe mm. it's not the way you planned it, but, you know, advocacy, articulation and experience, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. I had um, in 2019, I had an Australian story, like an episode done on me, and I sort of was like so taken back because it's sort of to me, I feel like my journey is just beginning, but I suppose the reality is like I've got a bit of a story to tell already and I think there's so many young people in ag, but like everyone in ag, they have a story to tell and it's just whether they have the ability to tell it, one thing, but also are given the chance to tell it because we've got some pretty incredible stories when it comes to the ag industry. Um, Kate, tell me about, you mentioned about getting young people into ag. I mean, there's no silver bullet there. What are some of the things, you know, for our younger listeners who, who you know, might be thinking about it or, you know, are, are, are getting in it and sort of what would you suggest to them? What are some things? I mean, it's, it's, I know it's so broad depending <laughs> on what industry and everything, but what are some of the things that, that um, you could suggest? 
I think, you know, there's two things that I sort of always highlight. Like one's education, um, you know, making sure that kids sort of from like a school age understand the opportunities that we have. Like, and I'm always like every chance I get, I'm going out to schools or universities and highlighting all the really cool things that I'm doing because, you know, I look at the the sort of last month for me, like one week I was out fencing, the next week I was um, I work at a think tank. I work for the Australian oh, yeah. Institute. Want to get to that? Yep. Yeah. So um, work for them. So I was writing a report on water issues and mental health in the bush. This week I'm here, and next week I'm going to be in Canberra meeting with politicians. Like my, I, I have about four or five different jobs, and that's just you know my journey in agriculture. It's not just you know, working on the station or working on, you know, mum and dad's farm anymore. Like, and that's something that's really important to me. Like, I love the ability to go back and do that, but there are so many opportunities. Um, and I think trying to get that out and I think it's our job to sort of advertise agriculture because I know that agriculture is the best industry in the world to be working on. Um, but also getting people excited about the future. I think too often we hear about, you know, the the woes of agriculture and that there's no future and there's no hope and that's not the reality. And we're seeing it today with all the incredible speakers. They all have so much hope. Um, and I'm like, I'm sort of like holding onto my seat because I just know how exciting the next, I think, like 10 years are going to be as we're seeing all these young people coming up through the ranks, the incredible ideas that they've got, the progressive views. Now's the time to be in agriculture. And I think especially when it comes to being a young female in agriculture, mm. there has never been a better time to be here. Um, we have uh, we need to change some things in high school. <clears throat> That's a career, you know, the career. Um, what are they called? Career advisors. They yeah. would say, you know, we got to get them getting people like you get ninety ninety eight in your HSC or whatever the the state equivalent is, mm. and they go, oh, you got to be a doctor. You know, yeah. you get you get forty, and they go, oh, you could probably go farming. Yeah. I've got to spin <laughs> that on his head. No, we? exactly. You know, like it's it, it is a it's a it's a golden opportunity. Tell me about um, the think tank and, and meeting with politicians. Or yeah. are they two separate things? They're sort of two separate yeah. things. So, yeah, over the last few years, of course, with water issues, I've um, created some pretty incredible um, relationships with different politicians and particularly a few senators from all different parties. And that's what's been really incredible is to mm. be able to work with people from all different views. And I think I really have an ability to sort of show them something that otherwise they wouldn't, like, they wouldn't hear those sides of the story enough. You know, they get a lot of rhetoric from the cities and um, I think being able to, like, take them out, like, I've taken a heap of them out to the station and I've taken a heap of them out to Menindee and shown them the reality of what's going on, particularly when it comes to water management. And being able to do that's been really important. Um, but, yeah, so this year I started with the Australia Institute. I am, um, I'm called, like, an Anne Cantor mm. Fellow. Um, so, essentially, I'm a researcher and they're sort of helping me with, like, career counselling as well. They're giving me a lot of, like, mentorship, looking at networks, all of this incredible mm. stuff. But they try treat me just like any other researcher. So I get to pick my topics. Last week I was writing on mental health in the bush. Um, this, like the week before, I was sort of working on um, water issues. They give me a lot of freedom and I think that's what's been really incredible because they've said in the past that if it wasn't for me putting these ideas and perspectives forward, it's something that gets missed and all too yeah. often rural Australia gets forgotten. So where does this, your reports or your research, where does that then go? Does that help inform politicians on policy and the party stuff what, what happens to it yeah so my first report actually gets released hopefully next week mm -hmm. uh, which is really really exciting it's quite a big report um and i suppose we'll do a few things like we always say that we're as much think as we are tank so we have a massive comms team and it's actually working out where does this go does it go to politicians but also you know 
everyday Australians need to know this information. It's not just there to sort of influence a politician on what way they should vote. Like everyday Australians need to be connected to these issues that we think are really important. Um, so yeah, like we we're out in the media a lot. I think it's interesting now that I work for them. I see them on like TV all the time and on radio. Like we honestly have some of like the brightest minds in Australia from economists to like people in climate change. It is just amazing to see these people and um, particularly young people. They're really supporting them and giving them a voice and, and that's just so important to see. And is again that related to your um, uh, your meeting with the politicians and, as well? Is that is sort of a cross-pollination with, with that or has it been a separate sort of a... Sort of, sort of like thing? work, like, you know, with some politicians that I've already got relationships with, mm. but no, it was quite separate. It just yeah. it was an opportunity that came up and they said, hey, we want you to come and do this. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it's been an incredible opportunity. So um, I'll be there for at least 12 months. Um, cool. And, yeah, it's just been incredible. So who's at home doing all the work? <laughs> so um, my parents <laughs> like, actually... Oh, I'm, I'm gone again. <laughs> yeah. I'm off to Canberra. No, no. Um, my parents actually both live in Adelaide as well, so they're, they're separated um and then I've got two brothers I've got one that's 14 months younger than I am um, so he's 22 and then one that's two year two years old so they live in Adelaide as well so we have the most incredible um team up at the station um and I think they really understand with me and as do the think tank so the think tank allows me to go week on week off and the station allows me to sort of um, choose when I can be up there of course shearing always mm. straight up there but I think everyone I work with understands that to get the best out of me like I need that freedom to sort of go and do different things and um, when opportunities like this come up like being able to do that because a lot of people don't have that opportunity so yeah we've got um, about five or six staff at the station that keep it running um, and yeah they're, they're all like family like it's just this tiny little community that's like my heart and soul awesome um, and as you were saying in your thing in your your talk before you know it, it was um, it used to be a town pretty much and 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 it's it's sad when those uh, it's sad that those little towns or villages aren't there anymore. But 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 you know, to, it's really important to maintain um, that sense of community, isn't it? You know, and having having and, and treating your staff as family. I think that's wonderful. Kate, um, conscious of time, eighteen minutes in. I have another question for you, if you don't mind. Is um, the or any gold nuggets that you dug up today that you you know someone said something um, at the conference and you went oh my god that's awesome or I'm going to look into that or you know anything that really stood out any revelations that you can share. I think regen agriculture as a whole has been like massive, like my eyes have just been massively open today, but I think really like that respect for your soils and that you really need to treat them above all else. Like, you know, it's not just dirt, like, and I think all too often we as farmers just like, you know, think think of it as dirt, like really trying to keep those healthy soils. That was fascinating to me and seeing, I think the evidence right there on the screen of exactly what these people are doing, the benefits that they're seeing was incredible and having and just another thing um the principles work everywhere and are the same aren't they and it's Mm. and it's you know the principles of um as charlie messi went through today you know they can be applied on a a, your mint plant on the back veranda or to you know some hundreds of thousands of acres so and i think that's the wonderful thing is that it's not it's not about oh that's not going to work it's about adapting to your situation so there's some grazing management that you could adapt there's God knows what what whatever else, but that the good news is that those things are there, and the science is behind it, and 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 people are doing it. Um, I did have another question for you, and it's totally gone now. I was just going to finish on it. Um, anything else from the the any other takeaways from today's? Um, today's course. Oh, just oh, this, the conference this morning having 
Charles Massey and Bruce Pascoe sitting up on that couch was like, I was so starstruck. I have been so excited for months about this conference because they really are two people. Like I don't read all that much, but um, yeah, I've got their books. They sit on my desk. So I have never been so excited about that. And to be able to meet them and have a chat with them. um, Yeah. Couldn't ask for anything more. They are awesome. That's what I remember I was going to say now. It was more about um, two words that I try and use as often as I can and, and, and also, um, action, do, is reverence and compassion for the landscape. You know, looking mm-hmm. at it, and this what was what um, uh, Bruce um, brought up this morning, um, and he didn't necessarily use the word compassion or reverence, but the, the sentiment was the same, is that looking upon and, and and remember when Bruce said, I'm here talking about love and not tractors, yeah. you know, and that yeah. was awesome because he's, he's – it's a word that um, – we don't use enough in terms of our landscape, you know, and having, having, as I said, you know, having an affair with, with the landscape is a really healthy thing, you know, mm-hmm. and, and bring the romance back and bring in the love and the compassion. So that's awesome. Um, Kate, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm going to let you escape to <laughs> the rest you. of the rest of the party now and get warm. It's quite cool out here now in the hay shed. And um, I'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow for the, for day two. Can't wait. Thanks for having me on. Good on you, Kate. Thank you. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed sitting down with those guys and girls uh, there at Tomarop Farm in the hay shed. It was awesome. Uh, windy, uh, but we were able to round some bales up and some old furniture and set aside some time with those wonderful, uh, wonderful presenters and hosts. Uh, and next week is part two. Uh, I won't tell you who we're talking to because you'll just have to wait to next week. But it was a ripper and a beautiful way to finish off the uh, the two days at the Farm to Plate Exchange. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.